This is episode 15 of Alohomora for November 4th, 2012. Hey guys, welcome to episode 15. Uh, as we are now recording, a great storm is about to hit the East Coast. Halloween's about to come. I'm Noah Freed. I'm Rosie Morris. And I'm Caleb Graves. And we are joined this week by a special fan guest, and his name is John. So, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Hi. <clears throat> um, well, uh, I'm a Slytherin in, on Pottermore. Uh, my wand is uh, the wood is ebony. Uh, 10 and 3 fourths inches, and phoenix feather, and surprisingly swishy. <laughs> oh, cool. I'm but, also surprisingly swishy. Me too. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's a... Uh, well, it's good to have a Slytherin on board. We don't have, I feel like, many Slytherins join yeah, us yeah, that yeah. are Pottermore Slytherins, so that's good to have. But I, I, I like listening to the show, so that's why I uh, I send in the little recording. Well, awesome. We're, we're really excited to have you on board, and I'm sure you'll be able to do all the Slytherins proud as we... Get closer to the Chamber of Secrets. Oh, yes. So we would like to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors, Audible. Exclusively for fans of Alohomora, they are offering a free audio download. They have over 100,000 titles to choose from, so head over to audiblepodcast.com open to get yours now. All right, well, we're going to kick it right off and start with comments from um, our last episode where we discussed chapters 9 and 10 of Chamber of Secrets. So our first comment comes um, on the topic of the writing on the wall and sort of where that phrase comes from. And this comes from our forums, and it is from AIS Roads. I noticed on the most recent podcast that you were wondering about the significance of the chapter name, the writing on the wall. Incidentally, I had researched a little on the term earlier this week. It comes from an old Bible story about King Belshazzar, I guess, and how he had been praising fake gods at a feast when a hand appeared and wrote on the wall. It was a simple bit of wordplay that said, man, many, many tekel parson. Something like someone, that. Someone fix me. All right. Which meant that his reign was going to end and his kingdom was going to be divided because he praised idols and sinned against God. Now the term is used when there are signs showing that something bad is coming. Joe would have been using this idea of the doomed king to relate it to how the writing on the corridor was promising destruction, and like the old king, Hogwarts would be doomed. Wow, yeah, that's really cool. I mean, when I first brought it up, I was thinking just about the, the fact that the writing on the wall most often means just the, the obvious message or the, the truth when people can't see it. But it's interesting that it's also tied to this, uh, this King Belshazzar and this, this story about not believing in God or idol worship. And in the same way, I'm sure Slyther, Salazar Slytherin believed that only pure bloods attending Hogwarts was kind of sacred, and everybody else who was letting Muggleborns in was, was this uh, radical move out of that. So the writing on the wall, the heir of Slytherin has returned, is, uh, is kind of like that scenario, actually. It's very similar. It's, it's cool. Yeah, I agree. Thanks for sharing that story. And we all know that uh, Joe likes to you know, insert a little bit of biblical stuff or things from Christianity every now and then. So it's good to see that she does. All right. Well, our next comment comes um, on the topic of hearing snakes, um, Harry hearing the snakes and whether we talked a little bit about of whether maybe it's in his thoughts or if he's just, um, you know, hearing the, the slithering or however it's working. And this comes from she flew like a madman from the forums. 
And the user says, I agree that the others, the non-parcel mouths, wouldn't be able to distinguish the sound of snake hissing from the general hissing of pipes, etc. I don't think Harry was hearing the snake's thoughts. Parcel mouths can only speak to snakes. There's no mention of them being able to read snakes' minds. The only reason he can read Nagini's mind is because she has another piece of Voldemort's soul inside her. And that acts as a window, window into her thoughts for fellow Horcrux Harry. Yeah, that was a that was a really great comment, and I believe Caleb on the last podcast you were saying that you thought it was just the fact that they couldn't hear the hissing, and that's why Harry could get it. And I was the one kind of pulling along that Harry could hear it in his mind. But yeah, I think I was just thinking back to Nagini, and it's more likely that it was just the fact that they didn't register the hissing. Yeah, I think so. Um, and actually, she flew like a madman is all over these forums. Uh, like, um, I think she came in a little bit later on our episode discussions, but all the mods are really, really happy about all our comments, and, and so am I. She actually made another one, if, uh, Caleb, it's okay if I read another. From yeah, go for it. All right, so this one was on animals in the series, and as you guys all know, I'm very, uh, you know, just kind of curious about the, the way animals are treated in the series. So here's from her uh, talking about Mrs. Norris. On a less cheerful note about the hanging of Mrs. Norris from the torch bracket, I imagine Ginny used magic to hang Mrs. Norris up, but that's not what struck me about it. I think the real significance, bearing in mind that Chamber of Secrets and Half-Blood Prince are almost twin books, only becomes apparent in retrospect when you realize that Tom Riddle has been torturing people's pets long before he ever came to Hogwarts. So, that was all about why was Mrs. Norris the first victim. Um, you know, some people in the forums were speculating that... Um, Tom Riddle wanted to kind of practice on a, an animal first before the, the snake could get to a human. So it actually is true that, you know, when Voldemort was in his orphanage, he tortured uh, the little boy's rabbit, if you remember that scene. Um, mm, yeah. So, I mean, do you see the see this thread through the series that Voldemort has an issue with animals? Animals except snakes, of course, because he uses them quite a lot. Um Right. I don't know. I always assumed that Mrs. Norris just kind of almost like walked in on Ginny painting the message. Um, so the only real significance of her being attacked was that she was there at the time, a bit like all, everyone else that was petrified. They kind of just happened upon the monster. Um, That's true. But yeah, you can definitely see kind of animals being attacked as, you know, pets are things that people love. And Tom Riddle is all about destroying that aspect of people's lives. So, yeah, you could see why he would do it. Uh, so, th- Mrs. Norris got petrified, right, by the by the snake? Right. Yeah. Okay, so how is the snake petrifying people if he's in the pipes? Is he coming, he's coming out of the pipes, or? Yeah, I mean, I guess he has to come out at some point, or else. It's not like, you know, Miss Norris is crawling through the pipes herself. I just, I can't picture the huge snake going through the pipes and then somehow getting out of it. And going through the halls, and how that always that always confused me too. I mean, maybe maybe it was just peeking out out of uh, the bathroom. Yeah, because hmm. it is meant to be opposite Moni Myrtle's bathroom, isn't it? That's why she only got petrified because the the cat was looking at the the water that was coming out of yeah. the bathroom. Um, mm, okay. Or or maybe maybe somehow uh, the snake was acting through Ginny, and Mrs. Norris looked at Ginny's eyes. Hmm. That would be creepy. I don't think that's true. That'd be pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but yeah anyway thanks uh she flew like a madman excellent comments throughout the entire uh, on each episode keep them coming i yeah, enjoyed reading that. definitely that's a, that's a great name too <laughs> it's it's she flew like flu powder 
Right. Okay, so our next comment comes on the um, topic of Professor Lockhart's portrait and Noah sort of bringing up that maybe it's um, a feminine quality that was used for the description. And this comment comes from our forums from Loomis, Loomis Night 3. I read Lockhart's portraits with their hair rollers in a different light from feminism. I see it more as drawing attention to the fact that Lockhart is completely 100% artificial, and thus, his portrait selves do things like fuss about hair and how they look, because Lockhart is all about the exterior presentation. He is image conscious, and his books similarly are only surface deep, owing to the fact that they are fake. His portraits are a reflection of that. I often find that the small glimpses Joe gives us of portrait personalities are much more blunt and forthcoming about the real person they portray. Yeah, I yeah. agree. It's a lot more about vanity and thing than any kind of feminine, feminine aspect. Right. I'd, I'd agree with that. But then what about, what about the fact that Lockhart's supposed to be this brave hero? Shouldn't he have like these bold-looking pictures of himself being a kind of a masculine hero? And if not, does that don't these feminine attributes like tend to invalidate that and show that he's more of a more of a woman but aren't the hair rollers and things like isn't that an aspect that only happens at like night when they're not being seen i thought they were kind of meant to be the bold heroes during the day when they're on show right but just just the for the pure fact that joe is showing that their true form is this feminine version does that mean that she's using feminine characteristics to belittle him I mean, I, I even associate it to uh, later in this it, one of the earlier chapters where Draco and Harry are flying during the Quidditch uh, during a Quidditch game, and, and Draco's like, "Try out for the ballet, Potter!" Like when he's when Draco's watching Harry jumping all over, and the the uh, implication of that is that Harry is being associated with ballet, which is you know, my my actually my roommate's a dancer, so it's possible for men to do ballet. But in this instance, Draco is using it to uh, emasculate Harry. So mm. we're getting all these instances of characters being um, emasculated or belittled by other characters by saying that they're a bit more feminine, which is, you know, it's, it's realist because that's what happens in our own society, especially around young guys. But um, it has certain implications here. And I think the fact that um, we see Lockhart this way in private without any character, you know, going out and saying it, like with Draco and Harry, it's almost as if uh, Joe herself is making this. This, uh, no. this idea I really think it's just it's all to do with um, the, the vanity and the idea that he is obsessed with the way he looks and his celebrity rather than like you can you can have hair rolls and things without necessarily being a feminine trait most of the like male celebrities you know of that have long hair will probably use hair rollers if they want the wave in it there is a lot of like behind the scenes stuff that happens to make men look good as well as women that are considered oh, yeah, feminine aspects that aren't actually feminine at all yeah yeah very good and point it's just it's a glimpse of that okay <laughs> it can either be two sides of the two sides of the same coin but if, if you want to keep talking about this in the forums anybody who's, who's listening you know come chat at us and we'll we'll be happy to keep talking about it definitely okay and last episode we also talked about hermione's motivation for um basically defying Harry and Ron when it come to came to the Polyjuice Potion and the possibility of breaking a lot of rules. And we talked about whether if she was motivated, motivated by her own fear or um, the desire to, you know, do something good and protect those people who might be attacked. And 
Zio Regredients from the forums took one side and said, I didn't get the scared vibe from Hermione at all. I think she was just in her Hermione on a mission mindset. Her eyes were described as bright and her cheeks quite flushed. I think she was aware that she could be attacked herself, yes, and that this gave her some real motivation to do something and take action. It's sort of similar to her save the house elves mindset. All that passion and motivation. Oh, Hermione, your Gryffindor is showing. (laughs) But on the other side, this came from the forums from Missouri Muggle 7. It seems like I'm certainly in the minority with this opinion, but I believe Hermione was very fearful, if not terrified, after the petrification of Miss Norris. It really stood out to me on page 145. After Dumbledore dismisses the trio from the scene of the crime, they duck into a classroom to quickly discuss what had happened before returning to the dormitory. What struck me was Hermione's silence. I had to reread it because I was sure I must have missed her saying something. It just seemed so out of character for her not to be offering ideas or history or at least shooting down others' ideas. I think she was very shaken and afraid. She had already been singled out for ridicule for ridicule as a muggle-born earlier in the year, and it had just taken and it had just been taken to a much more serious level. She is a twelve-year-old girl who has been singled out and threatened with a monster of unknown origin and power. What makes Hermione a Gryffindor here is that her fear drives her to action, not to cower in her dormitory. Wow. So so we've got two very well thought out sides that both sort of drop on the Gryffindor trait. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And isn't it interesting that uh, the the second commenter, Misery Muggle, points to the fact that she's not speaking in that dialogue, and that being a point to the fact that she's clearly shaken. And I, I would actually agree with that. I think that's pretty accurate. I know she's really brave. Definitely she's got that. But she can also be scared. I, I think mm-hmm. we're, we're trying to we, we try to paint her too much as the hero, but even the heroes can be scared. And then that's what makes them even braver because they rise out of that. But yeah, I, I still see instances of her being pretty pretty scared here. Yeah, I agree. Maybe the reason she wasn't talking was because she was busy thinking about uh, who could have done it. Maybe she wasn't necessarily scared, but more, uh, more trying to contemplate on who could have done the, the who could have done that to Mrs. Norris. Yeah, I thought that too. Um... It's really hard to know. It's really interesting that she doesn't speak. I've never actually really noticed that before. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think she would definitely be afraid a little bit, but I don't think that's necessarily a motivation behind the Polyjuice Potion. I've always seen the Polyjuice Potion as this, you know, super advanced piece of magic that Hermione wants to show off about. She's read about this um, way that she can kind of find out about um, Draco a bit more and she wants to show off and prove that she can do a advanced potion that shouldn't be able to be done by second years um, so I think yeah she she might be afraid in that scene straight after the um, the message has been posted up but I don't think it lasts very long and I don't think she feels any real fear because I think she she thinks that they'll figure it out long before it gets to the stage where she could be attacked at this point at least mm-hmm yeah, I agree, but I also, I do like that Missouri Muggle 7 pointed out the fact that she is 12 years old. Yes. So, I mean, it's obviously very clear that there has to be at least some level of fear um, for someone that young, which is obviously understandable. But I agree with is Rosie. she not 13 at this point? I thought her birthday was just before term started, so she would be 13. Okay. Oh. Well, I mean, not it, still, she's super young. Yeah. <laughs> I think she's. I think she's actually twelve now, and Harry might be. Oh wait, no, no, you might be right. Thirteen. 
Yeah, she's the oldest of them, so. Yeah. Right. I thought that she was scared uh, from the beginning, but mm-hmm. we'll have to see. I mean, she doesn't really break rules that much, and the, the thing about this extraordinary scene is the fact that she does break so many rules without even thinking about it, um, especially yeah. in these chapters, Ron and Harry saying, you know, you've never, you're usually pretty strict on the rules. I mean, I feel, I feel like that gets repeated. Do we see scenes later where she is breaking, I, I know in the fifth book it happens, she's, she's uh, breaking more rules because she's angry. Doesn't that make this scene extraordinary? The whole actual Polyjuice Potion section later on um, in, in the Dueling Club chapter, which we'll, we'll get to um, in a little bit later, it's all Hermione and it's all her breaking the rules. It's, it's quite interesting to look at her at that point. Okay. Uh, well, our last set of comments come on the topic of the hat stalls that we talked about um, last episode, and we were sort of looking for some more interesting combinations other than what we see most people having, which is Gryffindor Slytherin or Hufflepuff Ravenclaw. So the first comment came from Athemia from the main site, and the comment says, My sister was a hat stall between Ravenclaw and Sly- Slytherin, which I think makes a lot more sense than Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff. Most of the prominent Slytherins in the series, Voldemort, Snape, the Malfoys, and even Slughorn and Knot, whom we know less about, are quite intelligent, and Slytherin has won the House Cup many times, often for years in a row, and I don't think it could have gotten all these points if a good percentage of its students weren't intelligent. Ambition can only get you so far. I think the difference between Ravenclaw intelligence and Slytherin intelligence is that the first is used for its own sake, for gaining more knowledge, while the second for reaching certain goals and for personal gain. Hmm. We don't have a Ravenclaw on today, but maybe, you know, John, you can sort of speak to the Slytherin side of that. Well, um, I think the person is right that that's, pr- that's pretty much the difference between Ravenclaw and Slytherin. Uh, I, I never really thought the Slytherins were unintelligent, but yeah, I definitely think that they use their intelligence for their own sake. I wouldn't say that Slytherins are necessarily more intelligent than uh, Gryffindors or Hufflepuffs, but maybe due to their ambition, ambitions, they tend to be more vocal about what they think. Um, and that wins them praise at the end of the day, wins them points. Mm-hmm. And that could be where the, that's why they're connected. Yeah, all that cunning and scheming kind of needs a certain amount of intelligence to plan it all out. Um, whereas Ravenclaw intelligence is more kind of bookish and more, you know, kind of scholarly intelligence, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and Gryffindors act on a lot of uh, instincts. Yeah, they right. don't need to plan. <laughs> and Hufflepuffs. <laughs> we just do everything best. <laughs> <laughs> or we're not thinking, but I think we're thinking. <laughs> and the the second comment on this topic I think is just so awesome. This got emailed to us um, at our Alohomora podcast at gmail.com. And the comment says, when I was sorted on Pottermore, I was a three-way hat stall between Ravenclaw, Hufflepuff, and Gryffindor. Whoa. This surprised me because I felt the only two house I might conceivably fit in would be Ravenclaw or perhaps Slytherin. I definitely didn't feel brave enough to qualify as Gryffindor, nor hardworking or patient enough to blend into Hufflepuff. It was an easy choice for me to choose Ravenclaw to be my home, as that's the house I've always had an affinity affinity for. But I don't know anyone else who had to choose between three houses. So I saw this, and I also saw someone else post on the forums about this, that um, they had read about this happening, and I was completely unaware that this was even a possibility. No, I'd never heard of a three-way pastel before. How many questions are on the test? Maybe seven? Um... Yeah, somewhere between 7 and 10, maybe. 
that's just incredible. I wonder if it's possible to be split between all four. Yeah, I was just thinking that too. That's that's crazy. I don't know what that says about a person if they're like, they're just so spread out as far as like different personality traits or I don't know. I mean, the fact the fact that Dumbledore said maybe they sort too soon seems to imply that either your values change over time and that leads to your decision or that people are clear are just inherently uh, multiple houses. So I'm not sure which one of those is true, but this would seem to imply that um, some people naturally have indications for all these different uh, mindsets or houses because I think at the end of the day, each one of these houses reflects a, a kind of ideolo- ideology or thought structure. I think it's interesting that the person that said this, you know, said that there was one of those three houses that um, he or she was definitely not um, aligned with, like Gryffindor for this person, and that um, he or she could have sort of seen the diff- the split between the other two houses. So I think that's interesting, like that they didn't even consider the third one because I feel like for me, I've always like felt very torn between like obviously I'm a Gryffindor, but it's only been another house Slytherin that I've always felt like, well, maybe that's also where I belong. I've never considered, Oh, maybe I also belong in like this third house. I was the same way, but then I was a Hufflepuff. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas I'm kind of a Hufflepuff by nurture because of my, my experience with other Hufflepuffs on um, the fan fiction beta boards. Um, So when I got, I was a hat stall between Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw. I kind of picked Hufflepuff out of loyalty rather than kind of exploring more my more Ravenclaw side. So, yeah, mm. it's interesting. I was a hat stall between those as well. <laughs> but yeah, to have a a three or a four way hat stall must make you a very interesting person. We'd like to meet you. <laughs> Is it possible to get a four way hat stall? If you ha- if someone out there has. Had a hat stall with all four. You've got to tell yeah, us because that's, that's insane. <laughs> How do you choose? <laughs> well, those were definitely some great comments. Um, there were a ton more when I was going through the forums, and we just don't have the time, unfortunately, to read all of them. But please continue to share them with us on the forums in the main side because we love going through them. Definitely. You can you can either go into the discuss the podcast thread where you can like respond to our comments, which we tend to read, or you can go into individual topics, which are really cool, where fans get together and they break down specific instances of the chapter, and we go through all of it. So um, there's there are many different ways that you can comment and be on the show. Okay, so we're now going to discuss our special feature from last week, which was Trelawney's Seeing Glass, and it was all about hidden chambers. Um, so this comment is from the forums, and it's from Alleywood, and it says. As I think Ron says at one point, how many monsters can this place hold? How many secret lairs and monsters and heirs opening places can one castle have? It does beg the question, though, did the other three founders have secret chambers? Did they hide things in there for the heirs to find? Is this where Gryffindor's sword was kept until it appeared in the sorting hat? Did Ravenclaw plan to keep her diadem there? And before Hufflepuff, uh, sorry, before Helena stole it, um, was Hufflepuff's a place filled with plants and sunshine or where magical food appeared? Maybe it was the kitchens. What do you guys think? I mean, are we sure that the room of requirement wasn't created by one of the founders? That would be interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we really know as far as canning goes how it was created, right? I, I don't think it was ever explained. I would be really happy if that's Gryffindor's room as a Gryffindor. <laughs> well, I, I just speaking from my, my Hufflepuff knowledge, um, I don't know about Helga, but as a child I always dreamed of crawling into a place where I can find all my secret favorite foods. Um, now my being a Hufflepuff really makes sense because we're so close to the kitchens. 
So I'd agree. Hufflepuff's going to have a, a secret kitchen somewhere. So what about Ravenclaw? What kind of secret room would she have? A library. Exactly. <laughs> but, a, but a much more intense library. Yeah. <laughs> However, a library can be intense. <laughs> that kind of makes me want to go and, you know, move all of the books in the library to see if one opens a secret door. Ah, that'd be cool. <laughs> the restricted, restricted section for only smart people. It's not really hidden, though. And it's more dangerous than smart. It might be hidden in the invisibility section, because there is one in the library, and that's where Harry ends up hiding later in the chapter, pretty funnily. Interesting thought. But yeah, I, I, don't, think, I don't think they had secret chambers. I, I feel like that was only Slytherin. That was his uh, claim to fame. Because the other, the, found, the other founders, as far as I know, were working on the castle. Yeah. And to kind of hide something away is more of a kind of a cunning, a Slytherin trait than the others. They'd be more kind of proud to say, look at this room, isn't it amazing? Yeah, exactly. But are their dormitories not secret chambers? Because uh, do the students know where each of them are? Because uh, later in the other chapter, uh, Ron and uh, Harry seem kind of lost when they're trying to get to the Slytherin common room. Right, I think I think they just uh, students have a general sense where the other common rooms are, but for each house, those common rooms are pretty sacred, and those are the secret chambers. So I think for like the other three founders, those uh, common rooms would have been the extent of what they needed. They, they would have been fine with that. Slytherin clearly wanted something more or deeper. It was interesting that Joe Joe said that it was always her intention for Harry to go to each of the common rooms, um, and obviously we see him go to Slytherin in this one, and then Ravenclaw right at the end. Um, but sadly, he never makes it to Hufflepuffs. Um, there's just no reason for him to go there. Yeah. Would have been nice to see. Well, we get all that on Pottermore, so... This is true. That's pretty nice. Okay, so another comment from the forums was from Watchstone, and it says, You have to wonder if it's a standard wizard practice to put secret passages in institutions or if the founders thought it would be fun for fun in a school for 11 to 17-year-olds. For example, does the ministry have have more entrances than we know about? Or what about St Mungo's? Personally, I always love a good secret passage whenever I go to a kind of a, a manor house or anything here in England. So, yeah, secret passages are definitely fun for 11 to 17-year-olds. Do you find that it's standard in, uh, in, in castles and, and buildings in the UK for them to have some form of secret chamber? Um, it's not standard, but there are a lot... Um, Okay, history student time. Um, There's a a lot in um, kind of Elizabethan era um, castles because of the uh, religious kind of battles that were going on at the time. Um, When when Catholics were kind of outcast from the country, um, they created these things called priest holes um, where they would hide um, those of a certain religious disposition that wasn't allowed um, to be practised. Um, so there are quite a few old houses and old like castles and things that have these secret passageways deliberately made to hide something away. Um, and there's a fair amount of tunnels to churches and other things as well. It's, it's quite fun. If you come over to England, do try and find a good house with a secret passage. <laughs> no, we'll have to. And uh, it, that actually sounds pretty significant as to what this is, because, of course, Salazar Slytherin is building the secret chamber because his beliefs are, are separate. Yes. And he, he needs to hide. He needs to hide it away. Yeah, definitely. I love secret passageways. I'm going to build a house with like eight of them in there one day. <laughs> I've always wanted a hidden room behind a bookcase. Just, it's, it's got to happen at some point. <laughs> I just want my secret bakery. 
<laughs> okay, so we've got another comment from She Flew Like a Madman. Um, and it says, I always reckoned if there was a Gryffindor room, it is the room of requirement, because it acts so much like the sorting hat, providing the sword of Gryffindor in times of need. And also because the um, the room of requirement will help anyone, no matter if they're breaking school rules, so long as they ask for it. Yep, I agree. I'm down with this. I don't know. It sounds like that would be the mutual room that all the founders would have helped to create because it can be so many things. Um, it, it doesn't seem to be even a matter of loyalty. Or even the Hufflepuff room, because it will, you know, it will be whatever you need it to be. It's there to take everything into account and help whoever needs. I mean, it was even a bathroom for Dumbledore. Exactly. <laughs> so not a very great I, I think it's so fascinating. <laughs> I think we have to wait um, until book five for us to truly, truly talk about it enough yeah. but that's a thought okay and our final comment in this section is from supreme mugwump and it says and finally the founders and their secret chambers caleb said that ravenclaws would probably be a library and that's entirely possible but i also think her hypothetical chamber could contain really dangerous or complicated spells relating to knowledge what if there's a way to learn everything someone else knows instantaneously transfer that knowledge to yourself that kind of thing there could also be dangerous or sensitive pieces of knowledge themselves in book form or some other form that could explain things that the general wizarding population shouldn't know. What kind of things are we hiding from the general wizarding population? That's quite scary. <laughs> yeah, jeez. Mm. There's a lot of implications there. Mm. It's, it's an interesting thought. There's um, It's quite a common trait in sci-fi rather than fantasy to have something that contains all knowledge that can download to your brain in some way. I think it's, it's even like featured in Stargate at some point. Um, and I think if anyone was going to do it, it would be Ravenclaw. But I think that she understands that knowledge can also be dangerous. So I don't think she would want anyone, any one person to have access to that much knowledge. I was just thinking about this in terms of the houses. Um, in my history of Christianity class, we were talking about um, intelligence and if you could kind of couldn't reason versus faith. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems that Ravenclaw's well, really the whole Harry Potter series seems to be between in terms of intelligence, Ravenclaw and Gryffindor. Gryffindor is this kind of instinctual faith, um, which I'd almost compare to religious faith because you're not really going into reason; just it's just kind of a knowingness that's higher and and kind of these. It's kind of morally right, whereas Ravenclaw intelligence seems to be this idea that reason is the highest and you can get to these places. But a lot of the you know older religious leaders um, believe that you couldn't necessarily reason, reason faith. You can reason belief in God or using just your intellect alone. So considering that a lot of the big uh, Ravenclaw theories of intelligence, like I'll, you know, I'll go back to that, that riddle that McGonagall will solve to get into the, uh, the common room, it's... Uh, the the idea of everything being a part of everything else I don't know I don't remember what the exact quote was, but that that kind of idea seems to be more aligned with a, a spiritual higher knowing versus a a logical reasoned knowing because at some point reason like stops. Do you guys feel that in the series? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> no, I mean yeah, that makes sense. I, I just feel like the Harry Potter series as a whole seems to be more on the side of this kind of spiritual higher knowing versus stuff making, you know, exact sense. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we've run into that a lot on this show, right? Like talking, like trying to break down some things, and you know, it just seems to. I agree. Spiritual is definitely a way to way to put it, and we, like, I know I've already mentioned this once today, but obviously that's something we know Joe relies on a lot. Yeah. So. All right. So thank you, Super Supreme Mugwump. I like that name. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that was all of that bit, but we have also got our homework from last week which Noah kindly volunteered me to read out um, we asked you to write a poem um, based on Gilderoy's defeat of the Wagga Wagga Werewolf um, in kind of the, the theme of you know great poetic odes to, to other great figures in history um, well, also because uh, Gilderoy Lockhart had actually asked his students in the last class to, uh, oh, to yeah, write a poem about yeah. this so this is everyone's homework. They're turned in. I want to know why everyone else didn't. This is true. We've only got a few. <laughs> they're like, they're missing grades right now. Yeah, so some students are in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> However, it does make it fit into a podcast nicer. <laughs> <laughs> but Rosie, as, uh, as part of Muggle Night Fan Fiction, I thought you would like to uh, take part and help us read some of these. Definitely. Um, maybe we can alternate. Yeah. Um, also, we should point out that as part of Magnet Fan Fiction, there is actually an audio fictions podcast where you can listen to other great works of poetry and fiction written about the pa- Harry Potter series. Um, so maybe you'll hear some some of these people writing for that in the future. That would be cool. That's right. <laughs> so, the first poem is written by Asio Magic, simply titled The Wagga Wagga Werewolf. So... Listen up, class. Please go take your seats. I'm going to read one of my great feats. Lockhart waltzed swiftly to the mahogany shelf and whimsically selected a book on himself. Trying to be smooth, he risked a quick turl, but lost his own balance and squealed like a girl. The class erupted with laughter, but it did him no harm. He easily fixed it with a memory charm. With order restored, he opened his book. Oh my, he said. Just look here, look. It's the tale of that wolf, the one from Wagga Wagga, and how I managed to slay it while performing basic yoga. (laughs) Hermione shrieked with delight and she fell off her chair. She ran up the front and joined in with him there. First came the stretches, then came the poses, then came some punches he bruised Wagga's nose with. As the bell finally rang, Harry let out a sigh. It was moments like these that he wanted to cry. For he knew that detention was with Lockhart tonight, and so the Wagga Wagga dance he would learn to recite. (laughs) That's a brilliant That was really good. (laughs) Nice. I love the yoga. I did yoga last night. (laughs) Maybe you should try doing poetry while you try, while you actually stretch. Mm, That's what's missing. (laughs) (laughs) I can take the next one. It's from uh, Jess Fudd. It says, my poem is incomplete. I just... Blanked out at the end. Well, we'll see about that. (laughs) In the city of Wagga Wagga, there lived a deadly foe, a werewolf of great terror, now defeated, as you may know. When Lockhart heard the tale of this gruesome beast, he swashbuckled in to save the day and end the werewolf's feast. The battle that ensued was epic, there is no doubt. But the Wagga Waggans knew. Old Gilderoy would figure it out. The great tussle commenced. Brave Lockhart pounced with a howl and a moan. The beast was trounced. The village applauded, now safe from harm, filled with dizzy bliss from a memory charm. This must be how it happened. I'm almost sure of it. If not, then Gilderoy Lockhart must be full of... Oh, oh no. 
Yes, I love it. Oh, man. That was well, good. Sometimes it's what's unsaid is what the full meaning of poetry. But. <laughs> there we go. All right, so I guess I'll grab the next one. This one is from Fox Fan. <clears throat> Lockhart walked through the forest glade, stopping to rest by the pond in the shade. As he primped and admired his reflection in the sea of blue-green, the Wagga Wagga werewolf snuck up on poor Gilderoy unseen. Grrr, the werewolf cried. Poor Lockhart was so startled he about died. He saw the werewolf about to bite. Oh no, he thought. My beautiful face would be such a horrible sight. So Lockhart reached deep in his pockets. He drew his hair rollers and prized hairnets. The Wagga Wagga werewolf got all tangled up in them. That's as good as it gets. <laughs> Great. Good job, Foxman. And I like especially the, uh, clearly the Greek allusion, allusion to uh, Narcissus, who, mm-hmm. who looked in, right. his, looked in the, uh, the, the lake and sees his reflection, falls in love with it, and that, that captures the essence of Lockhart. Jonathan, do you want to try and read one? Should I read the next one? Yeah, yeah. Go, right. go for it. Okay. <laughs> Wagga Wagga Village was riddled with fear. Their monthly attack was drawing near. Terror spread as villagers waited. Would their death be the next one fated? No one yet had managed to end this werewolf's obsession of biting his friends. Its victims included ten wizards and a muggle, all of which had put up a struggle. But suddenly, help was at hand from a wizard whose smile is renowned in the land. His intervention was brave, as he tracked the wolf to a gloomy cave. Lockhart slammed the menace to the floor, his golden hair snagging in a long, a long curved claw. Never ceasing to grin, Lockhart gave his wand an effortless, effortless spin. The werewolf let out a piteous cry, then was back as a man within the blink of an eye. Thanks to Lockhart's complex charm, no more villagers would ever suffer harm. Brilliant. And that one was by... Ooh, that's good. I think and that, that would... was by Seriously Magic. Yeah. That would be Lockhart's favorite. That was a really good one, yeah. Okay, and our, our final poem... One more. ...is by Saiyan Girl. Um, and it starts by saying, uh, I gave it a shot and wrote it as if it was actually been for Lockhart's class. So talked him up a bit for good marks, you know. Slytherin, sorry. Brilliant. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and she also says that... Um, they assumed it was situated in Wagga Wagga, which is in New South Wales, Australia, which I didn't know, so that's useful. Hmm. Um, and it says, did you guys know that this Harry Potter reference is actually on the Wikipa- wiki page for that city? It's hilarious. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Wow. <laughs> so New South Wales can claim that, you know, Lockhart was there and he saved, or probably didn't save, Wagga Wagga from the werewolf. Okay. So I wonder if I wonder if Bristol has a wiki page and it says that Hagrid once flew over with baby <laughs> Harry. Should check that out. Yeah. Okay. For years, New South Wales had been troubled. Their anxiety had doubled, as the Wagga Wagga werewolf wandered around. The damage inflicted profound. But the state was in luck. World's courage, world's most courageous man had heard and come, got his stunning features covered in the werewolf's latest victim's guck then fooled the beast by feigning to be paralysed and numb. Yet Gilderoy knew blood did nothing but enhance his facade and drew magical strength from the public lord he knew would soon be his, even when the werewolf's claws tore his robes in that one miss. 
In one swift movement, he grabbed his wand, drawing complex diagrams into the sky. He muttered the homophus charm, leaving a confused wagawagamam who failed to abscond, now bound in, in by incarcerate ropes and unable to harm. Thus ends our werewolf tale, Lockhart's fame righteously risen, having ended the fatality trail with the Wagga Wagga Man in prison. <laughs> Great stuff. <laughs> I think the I think the Wagga Wagga Werewolf has officially been put to rest <sighs> by Lockhart. <laughs> but what a great but, uh, like, fictional myth, and what great poetry to come out of it. So thank you very much, guys. Yeah, definitely. No, that was great. I think I think in future, um, if you guys want to send us a, a poem, you know, we'd be happy to be happy to talk about it. Definitely. But we might try to do little homework assignments uh, every now and then that you guys can just comment on, and we'll read them. It kind of it shakes up the, uh, the listener comments that we usually do. It's really fun. So now on to uh, our last section of listener comments from last episode. The uh, We're going to answer my posed question of the week from last week, which was, um, very fortunately, Madame Pomfrey was able to regrow Harry's bones with Skelligrow after Lockhart erased them. That said, how does this magical potion work? Does Skelligrow contain a bone-growing formula which interacts with Harry's DNA? Does the potion, as we've been saying of many magical objects, contain a certain intelligence, such that it knows exactly where to help Harry grow bones? Another question where do these potions come from, and do you think the Department of Mysteries has tested them? So, you know, after looking at this question, I realized that does the potion have intelligence on its own? Probably not, definitely not. But I'm just, I'm really interested, especially looking at Polyjuice, how potions work. And um, some of these comments on the main site I'm going to read, you know, really helped us answer that. So, one comment from Radish Earrings Our bodies have a way of knowing how to heal themselves. Without getting too scientific on you, if you were cut on your finger, your body would send clotting agents to clot your blood so that you don't bleed out, and it would then send repair cells to that specific site in your finger. Therefore, I think that Skelligrow is probably helping along uh, to the specific side of the body itself. So that comment basically saying that Skelligrow interacts with your body's normal healing methods and therefore can, uh, can help uh, make it work. So that's pretty cool. Um, what do you guys? What do you guys think of just the general Skelligrow question? Just before we get into more comments, how do you think it interacts with Harry's body? I mean, yeah, that last comment was kind of what I was bringing up last episode. That it definitely has. I think it has to go a little more than just you know the general body healing process because we don't have a healing process in our body to like regrow bones like that. Um, so I think it has to go a little deeper into the the way the body system works, but definitely along those lines. Yeah, I mean, another comment from Eric the Oddball was saying that it actually inter interacts with uh, DNA. I believe the Skelligrow targets the affected area in much the same way that muggle medicines do. Perhaps the potion actually picks up a small sample of DNA as it is swallowed and uses that to regenerate cells, much as your body naturally rebuilds cells when you are injured. Um, yeah. Somebody else was commenting that maybe the potion interacts with some, uh, you know, maybe there's a, a DNA plan in your body that you have ever since you you know your fetus and you grow that just remains there and therefore by tapping into that design it can kind of allow your body to reproduce these bones the way it ought to be um, which, which sounds which sounds pretty right but I can't imagine how the potion would get a handle of this like this no. DNA map that you have I mean I think if it as far as like getting like the science being scientific it would have to sort of produce stem cells that would eventually differentiate into bone cells, and that would 
help the bones sort of regrow. But, but you know, at the same time, all of this is magic, so it right, doesn't necessarily have to be that scientific. <laughs> <laughs> but it does, Rosie. It does. We have to have it. <laughs> of course. I mm. just think it would be cooler if, if the potion itself, you know, the potion maybe has some kind of calcium base in it and it just, it's going to grow bone wherever the body has, you know, lost bone. Um, there is actually a, a thing um, with our own bones that they carry on growing until they hit something else. Um, so like where your, your joints are, that's where your bone has stopped growing because it's found another bone to grow next to. Um, so maybe it has something to do with that as well. Like it will, it will look for the bit that's missing um, using magic and then use calcium and, you know, maybe DNA or something and, and grow a bone from that. Well, on the Alohomora site, I posted one, and I basically just said that uh, when making the potion, I thought maybe they'd have to add bones to the actual potion, so when the person drinks it, uh, the potion know, uh, knows of all the bones in the human body, so it can detect which are which are uh, are gone, so it can just like copy the one that you put in the potion and just make mm-hmm. it in your body. Yeah. yeah, that definitely sounds a lot more the magical line. So I, I like that. Bone juice. <laughs> yeah, Yum. that's what it's affectionately called. Color grow is just called the bone juice. Yeah. <laughs> and one more, uh, one more really cool, interesting thought from Supreme Mugwump. Um, what if someone with osteoporosis drank Skelly Grow? Would the bones regrow with the same reduced mineral density, or would Skelly Grow be used to cure diseases like osteoporosis because it grows bones as they should be? Hmm. I guess, yeah, we wouldn't be able to know until we know, like, deeply enough how it actually works, what it's actually doing. Right. That's a good question. Because if it, if it kind of redoes whatever your bone chemistry currently is, then potentially it wouldn't really help you. Right. Mm. Yep. So, you know, maybe we just have to see a bunch, we have to see more potions and see how they work and... Maybe we can maybe, eventually maybe it does. Maybe it does cure it though. That's why people that are like super old, like McGonagall and Dumbledore, are so nimble and like still like ballers when it comes to dueling. They're just drinking Skelligrow. Yeah, like it's their morning supplement. <laughs> well, doesn't that seem kind <laughs> of passing. doesn't that seem kind of selfish though? Because Muggles are struggling with that. Do you, don't you think maybe maybe they should help Muggles with that? I mean, I think wizards in general are selfish. So it's the whole statute of secrecy thing. If we started interfering, if sorry, if we, if wizards started we, interfering, yeah, that, um, then, did you just let out your secret, Rosie? Guys, sorry. Rosie oh, is no. actually a witch. She lives in the UK and she goes to Hogwarts, or she went to Hogwarts. <laughs> I mean, in, in the Great Hall, so it's yeah, that's cool. I grew up assuming all British people were witches and wizards. But. Of course, you did. <laughs> But yeah, e- excellent comments here. Um, I have a really cool question of the week coming up that is also about potion making, so we'll get to that towards the end of the episode. Before we jump into the chapter discussion this week, I want to take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Audible. They are the internet's leading provider of audio entertainment with more than 100,000 downloadable titles to choose from, and not just books, but periodicals, magazines, even radio and TV programs. The great part is they get new releases the day that they're in bookstores, including one of our new favorites, The Casual Vacancy. The story represents J.K. Rowling's first drawn at writing fiction for grown-ups and tracks the story of a multitude of characters who live in the quaint town of Packford and what happens behind closed doors. After the death of the novel's protagonist early on in the book, Barry Fairbrother, the ugly truth about relationships, governments, and families are exposed. But hey, we don't want to spoil it for you, so go listen for free right now at the special link created just for our U.S. and Canadian listeners 
audiblepodcast.com slash open. So, every one of our listeners should take a minute to visit the site and start downloading directly to their computer for easy listening on burned CDs, MP3 players, and even your iPad, iPhones, or Androids. Again, the website made just for you is audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E, podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, dot com slash open, O-P-E-N. So visit audiblepodcast.com slash open for your free download today. Awesome. We're going to go ahead and jump right into our chapters for this week, chapters 11 and 12 of Chamber of Secrets. So we'll kick that off now. Okay, so chapter 11 is the Dueling Club, and it picks up straight where it left off from chapter 10. So Harry is still in the hospital wing, still, you know, um, recovering from Lockhart's kind of vanishing of his arm bones. Um, But he has been through the night, he has listened to all of the goings on, and he has regrown his arm. Um, So as soon as he's released, he goes out to look for Ron and Hermione, um, because they haven't been to see him. Um, and, you know, see if his arm's back. And he's feeling slightly hurt that they weren't interested in whether or not he had his bones back. And this is the first time that Harry isn't the main focus after a major incident. Do you think it's kind of revealing a bit about his personality that he's, you know, a bit hurt that they're not there to see him? I, th- I thought it definitely was. I zeroed in on it because I, I just mm-hmm. hadn't noticed it before. And I think it's part of his, uh, it's part of his hero complex. I think he likes, to, he likes to save the day when he can, but he also enjoys the aftermath of people kind of waiting hand on hand and foot on him or being really conscious but this time markedly uh ron and hermione are just off working because there are more pressing matters to attend to with everybody being petrified yeah yeah especially seeing as you know he's been through the night and seen colin has actually been petrified and of course the school's going to know about it so why does he think that he is more important than that happening yeah it's interesting he's harry potter (laughs) he is harry potter (laughs) harry freaking potter come on (laughs) So he goes searching for Ron and Hermione, um, and he, for some reason, doesn't have any clue where they could be, so he walks towards the library um, and finds Percy Weasley, who suggests that Ron, you know, shouldn't be going in any more girls' bathrooms, which, of course, means he has been. So Harry heads off towards Moaning Myrtle's bathroom and finds Ron and Hermione locked in a cubicle um, with a cauldron and a fire ready and making the Polyjuice Potion. Um, And... Conjuring up portable, waterable fires, uh, waterproof fires even, um, was a speciality of Hermione's. And these small fires, as I think it was Noah has said in this in this document, has, um, are similar to the ones that she makes in Deathly Hallows. Noah, did you want to say more about this? No, I actually didn't put that comment in. That's a mystery to me. Okay. But we should read it. Caleb, was it you? Because it might have been Caleb. It was me. Oh, okay, then John, nice. you go ahead. <laughs> These small fires are similar to the ones she makes in Deathly Hallows. Hermione seems to use fire many times throughout the series. In Philosopher's Stone slash Sorcerer's Stone, she sets Snape on fire, scaring away the Devil's Snare. And then in, uh, in Goblet of Fire, she helps Mrs. Weasley late matches. Why does Hermione use fire so much? Does it reflect her personality? Does it show that she really is a true Gryffindor because of fire being red? I, I just thought it was interesting how many times she uses fire in the series. Definitely. That's true. Yeah, I didn't really pick up on her ample use of fire before. Have you not? But that, that, that does definitely repeat. Yeah, yeah. I definitely... Um, you can see it even more in the movies. I mean, she's always conjuring little fires. Doesn't she have them in, like, jars later on as well? Or is yeah, that yeah, yeah. In Deathly Hallows Part 1, she does. Yeah. Um... 
I think fire is such an elemental force. Um, I mean, it's the, the whole big thing about, you know, man being the only animal that can, you know, control fire. Um, to be able to conjure fire is kind of an evolution of that. So it kind of proves Hermione as an advanced being compared to everyone else, don't you think? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so much, so much so. That was exactly what I was going to point to because uh, the fact is, it does it does reflect man's earliest intelligence. So the fact that she can do it, you know, proves that she's and it links her with this intelligence. So I think that was definitely done uh, intentionally. Okay. Um, so when Harry tries to talk about um, everything that, that he's heard throughout the night, Hermione interrupts and says, "We know um, that we heard Professor McGonagall telling Professor Flitwick this morning." These teachers really aren't very subtle in this school. If this is kind of a a private event and, you know, Colin's got um, the the screens around him now so people can't go and stare at him, why are the teachers gossiping in in the earshot of children? Yeah, it seems just so out of character for specifically McGonagall to be doing this. I I was really surprised at that reading back. And when did they hear as well? Was it just at breakfast or was Hermione deliberately... Or maybe they are like... maybe. Maybe they really are, like, in, you know, a more disclosed location, and Hermione and Ron are just, like, nosing their way in. (laughs) They don't really make that clear. Hmm. Yeah. It's just one of those things that we're supposed to just accept, but it's it's just a bit... (laughs) What is this school doing? (laughs) Yeah, it's a little unnerving that they would be, you know, easy to hear that. Well, I think I think it just goes to show that Professor McGonagall was is very shaken up by what's going on, such that she can't. She's not really in control of her faculties. yeah. So she, maybe she just had to tell somebody. An- another student has been petrified, and Professor Flitwick just and his squeaks like carry across the whole great hall. So you're <laughs> right. right. I can totally imagine that <laughs> the entire student body goes silent at Professor Flitwick's um, jumping up and down. <laughs> Not Colin Creevy. Anyway, <laughs> and then he falls over. It also it almost reminds me of uh, when Quarrel and. In the Chamber of Secret, I mean, uh, Philosopher's Stone, when he comes running through the Great Hall, yelling uh, that there's a troll in the dungeon, he's not very being, yeah. uh, being very subtle either. That was more on purpose. But that was though. on purpose, yeah. Oh, okay, maybe true, Mon- true, true. Maybe yeah, McGonagall sorry. wanted people to hear. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe it was a way of getting the information out there without having to, you know, acknowledge it properly. To specifically Ron and Hermione. Maybe they just have good hearing. anyway harry is able to tell ron and hermione about dobby's visit which they didn't know about um and they learn that the chamber has been opened previously 50 years ago would the trio have considered anyone else as you know the heir of slytherin both now and back then if they weren't so fixed on draco they see it as proof um that draco is the heir of slytherin because 50 years ago it would have been lucius malfoy and now it's obviously draco but could they not have, you know, worked out the dates slightly more? It's unlikely. I don't know. I feel like they'd have, they don't know many people. This is true. <laughs> Going to Draco immediately was kind of, uh, even though it was very spot on, you know, the way that they got there was kind of juvenile. I'm just wondering if, if they've kind of been blinded by this. And if they weren't so fixed on Draco, would they have ever, you know, started investigating seventh-year Slytherins? Or even the new ones, first year Slytherins, as it's only happening this year, not last year. There's kind of a lot of things they don't think about. I definitely think they're a little too blinded by it, as they often are with many things. Yes. <laughs> Once they get fixated on something. 
I mean, given the it's all about this heir has come to Hogwarts and the fact that the, the Chamber of Secrets has been opened, um, that, sh- they, that should have told them that a freshman was involved, or a first year, rather. <laughs> so maybe they would have started interrogating the little kids. Yeah. Though I don't really see that in them. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about being kind of fixated on something, Ron immediately asks, I want to know um, how come... Nobody's noticed it, meaning the monster, um, is sneaking around the school. Um, so how like we were talking about this earlier, but how does a giant basilisk fit into the pipes? Surely, you know, the walls aren't thick enough to have a uh, however many foot um, snakes sliding along them. Also, this is kind of a little Ron and Hermione moment, kind of leaning towards the later romance, as this is the one question that Hermione answers herself with the words "pipes" written on the page later on. It's like they're speaking to each other across different <laughs> different worlds. It is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I kind of, I, maybe the snake was acting through Ginny, I'll say it again. It's kind of crazy, but how else is that snake slipping through without being seen? Then again, the fact that there's water on the floor means that the snake came out for a bit, right? Yeah. Where do most of these attacks take place? If they're all kind of outside that bathroom, then it would be more obvious as, you know... It's getting out through that particular pipe that they later go down. But if they're all on different floors, then maybe it's maybe it is only using bathrooms and it has kind of outlets that it can get through to go through corridors. And it just never happens to meet anyone apart from those that it petrifies. That seems to be a, the idea is connected through the bathrooms. Yeah. But then again, why isn't anyone seeing this? Especially if you're sitting on that toilet at the unfortunate moment. <laughs> Yeah, that that makes life really hard. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? I'd rather not. Okay. <laughs> Maybe it's one of those things where students tend to avoid public bathrooms, so they'll they'll use the ones in their houses, but not necessarily the ones in the main corridors that everyone can use. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the next year they're uh, they're a little bit more conscious about the uh, <laughs> the school bathrooms. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Okay, so we learn that Ginny has been distraught about what happened to Colin because she used to sit next to him in charms. And obviously, with our second reading of the books, this allows us to know exactly why Ginny is so upset. And there are so many clues that we just don't pick up on in the first read because we just assume that she's young and afraid and, you know, quite upset about everything. Um, But it's got me wondering, did she only write in the diary this time and only unleash the monster... Um, because of Dobby's interference, you know, she's written, Dear Diary, Harry's been hurt in Quidditch. He's in the hospital wing. Should I go and see him? Um, if if Dobby hadn't interfered, would she have ever gone into that diary to, you know, be brainwashed at this moment? How many of the attacks were caused by some other event that Ginny has felt the need to write about? Mm. Well, I think there's... At this point, she's already uh, she's already kind of taken part in some of these attacks, right? Does, and does she know that she's consciously taking part? I think later on we we hear that she's she knows that it was her when she couldn't remember what had happened and she was covered in the red paint. Um, so I think from that moment she's kind of more reticent to write. Um, she doesn't want to to be as involved, and she's afraid. Um, so yeah, she is aware that something is happening and it probably involves her, but she doesn't necessarily know that it's the diary that's causing it at this point, I guess. Now, well, going back to, like, your 
original question. I mean, I think she's just probably, I mean, would be writing about almost anything at this point. Like, it just seems like she's putting everything into this diary. Her heart and soul, one might say. <laughs> right. So if it wouldn't have, wouldn't have been about Harry getting hurt, like, poor little Jenny would have found something else to be aggrieved about and write about. I think that she would write mainly about Harry, though. I mean... Well, that's true. Young girls who have crushes tend to write about them in their diaries quite a lot. Um, and we ha we hear Tom say that she's written about Harry fairly often. Um, so to have him be hurt in this Quidditch match, it just seems like that's kind of a trigger event that would make her write in the diary. To me, anyway. No, that seems, that seems possible. Um... You're the resident expert on this, Rosie. Can't say I wrote that much on your diary. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> um, another thought, though, is uh, can you imagine Ginny's torment, though, being like scared out of her wits by George and Fred around every corridor dressed up as monsters? Yeah. Poor Ginny. She's like, she's feeling bad, and then now that we've read it, we know how really bad she's feeling. All she ever wanted to do in Philosopher's Stone was to go to Hogwarts, and now when she's actually there, she's being, you know, tormented all the time. <laughs> She's having a pretty bad time. Yeah. Jeez, I wouldn't go back no. over it. <laughs> she kind of gets over it next year, as far as I can yeah, tell. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Why does she go back? It's and Hogwarts. She, yeah. It's Hogwarts and the She doesn't the want to sit at home with her mom all day. No, yeah. <laughs> Would you? Plus, it was a very specific no. thing that was happening, so once that's solved, then, you know, it's safe again. I would not want to go back after what happened. If if I were Ginny, I would not want to go back. Back to Hogwarts? Yeah, I would not. All right. Well, we do. We that know is... that it's it does stay with her for a while because she talks about um, what is it later on? Um, uh, oh, it's the potions book. Um, she talks about not being able to. Uh, she talks about trusting a book. When she shouldn't have done. Oh, advanced potion making, yeah, yeah. and haploid prints, yeah. That's true. But other than that, I don't see many instances of psychological drama coming from this. No. No, I think if anything, it just it eventually like serves to strengthen her character. Yeah, I That's think it right. helps that she can't remember anything while she was actually doing it. You know, she just has these blackout moments rather than yeah being aware. Right. Right. I think we should try to watch her reactions though as we move through the books and see if anything harkens back to this instance though. Yeah, and definitely look out for other attacks and what may have got her writing in the diary at that moment. Yeah. But the the attack has started a roaring trade in protective items um, around Hogwarts. And Jonathan, this is another one that you've posted. So the quote is that Neville Longbottom um, brought a large evil-smelling green onion, a pointed pur purple crystal, and a rotting newt tail before the other Gryffindors pointed out that he was in no danger. He was a pureblood and therefore unlikely to be attacked. Well, um, I wasn't sure about the, the evil-smelling green onion, but uh, <laughs> I did some research, and um, the purple crystal that they mentioned, uh, it could be a stone called fluor fluorite, uh, is believed to heal by releasing unwanted and negative energies, and is used as a good luck charm. Or it, uh, it could also be amethyst, it's also a purple crystal that could be used uh, by travelers for protection. And many cultures believe that putting the stone in their pocket would protect them while traveling and brought emotional stability and inner strength. 
which obviously Neville needs. So, yeah. very true. Good connection. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's really interesting how she draw how Joe draws from you know actual kind of superstition or magical um, theory um, and kind of juxtaposes it with other things like the evil smelling green onion and a rotting newt's tail um, whether it's kind of taking a dig at ideas of you know a crystal's not going to help any more than an evil smelling onion or whether it is kind of just putting down like these are people's beliefs I guess it's no different than a, a rabbit's foot either um, yeah, that, that's what I yeah, thought the newt's tail was resembling. Yeah. A rabbit's foot. It, it does kind of potentially put them down, though. I'm thinking back to the ghost nuns on last episode, or two episodes ago. Yeah, it's interesting. But Neville turns around straight away and answers these boys by saying, they went for Filch first. Um, everyone knows I'm almost a squib. So, you know, Neville, poor Neville, is really afraid that he is actually, well, he kind of knows that he's always the one that gets hurt. Why is it always me? Um, so he is really afraid that he is next in line to be attacked. Um, oh, I, I, yeah, I put that in. Um, yeah. I, I just looked up the word squib, and uh, the idiom a damp squib came up. And uh, I did you guys did you guys talk about that on the show? I don't think we have talked about it, um, but we should do no. now. <laughs> just the meaning of it, uh, and it uh, it's used in British and Australian culture, and. Um, it means uh, uh, it means uh, you use it in like a sentence when people think something's going to be exciting, and it turns out to be disappointing. Uh, for example, the party turned out like, turned out to be a damp squib because half the people who were invited didn't turn up. And then, yeah, cat at the bottom put uh, a, a squib is an explosive, so a damp squib squib would not explode. So, I, I don't know what you guys talked me. about that, yeah. but I thought I just added. <laughs> no, we haven't. We haven't talked about it before, but it, it's definitely interesting that um, it's actually one of the most misquoted things um, in the English language, and it's often misquoted as a damp squid with a D rather than a squib with a B. Um, but yeah, the, the squib is a kind of explosive, and the term is actually still used for blood packs in movies. Um, so if you ever see you know, someone being shot and then they have a kind of a pooling of blood on their shirt, that's actually a squib that's been exploded. Huh. Um, and other kind of explosives in, used in movie sets as well. Um, cool. So yeah, a damp squib wouldn't explode and wouldn't be at all exciting. Um, so it's quite interesting that that kind of idea is still kind of present within the idea of magical worlds and, you know, the squibs that can't perform magic. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of producing magic as a young person is kind of explosive in nature because yeah. you just everybody's waiting around this, this character to produce something. And in the case with Filch, I mean, he just, uh, maybe he has the, he has the stuff, but it didn't come out. Damp explosion. It would be interesting to hear more about squibs on Pottermore. So again, please, Joe. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Maybe we'll get something, you know, with these last few chapters. I was hoping that the chapters would maybe come out before we recorded for the last, for last Chamber of Secrets. That would have been great. Yet. Not yet. Hopefully by next time. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to do an analysis of the Pottermore content. Okay, so the trio decide that they are going to stay for Christmas because they hear that Draco is also staying over the holidays, um, which kind of struck me as odd. Why didn't Draco want to go home? He seems to have, you know, a, a good family life back in his Malfoy manor. 
He's got his own little servant in the shape of Dobby. Why wouldn't he want to go home for Christmas? Well, I, I thought maybe because uh, his maybe his parents didn't want him to come back because their house was being searched. I it think was, they, yeah. I think they mentioned oh, that, true. so yeah. maybe they didn't want him to come home because of that. That might be loosely connected um, because we know that he tends to give away information anyway, especially if he's very proud. We know what he said to... Uh, He's going to end up telling Ron later where the secret dark stuff they actually hide where it is. Yeah. But yeah, I so, wouldn't be surprised if it's connected to that. But again, something that isn't make, made in clear, you know. I was also wondering whether it could be that maybe Lucius has asked him to keep an eye on things. Like, he wouldn't have necessarily said that Ginny was the one controlling the monster. But he he's kind of his eyes inside Hogwarts to see what's going on. Um, so oh, I think good point. Lucius might want him there to to keep an eye on any attacks that might happen over Christmas. Good point. Um, so later we hear that Hermione needs to steal some um, supplies from Snape's potion store um, for the Polyjuice potion. And this is what I was talking about earlier. You know, what has happened to Hermione? Um, so far, for, she's, she's really kind of changed from this anti-rule-breaking girl that we met last year. Um... Instead, she, you know, she wants to steal. She says that she'll be the one to do it and the boys just need to make a distraction. Um, and does she just really want to show off about this advanced potion so much that she wouldn't mind stealing? Or is she that invested in stopping the monster? Or what do you guys think? Well, just hearkening back to our discussion before, I really think she's coming out of a place of fear. It's just there's no, there's no real fear in her discussion here. I don't think that she, like, there's no description of her as being afraid at this moment. I would have thought that, you know, even if she was afraid, she would still be afraid of being caught by Snape. Um, it just, she seems to be so gung-ho about, you know, breaking into his store that she just doesn't seem to care about anything else. Yeah, I think it's just she's, like, so determined to get this done, and she knows this is the only place she can get the potion ingredients. She's not going to take no for an answer because she didn't take no for an answer from Harry and Ron, so she's going to get it done, and she's going to get it done herself. Mm-hmm. I mean, she has this whole thing laid out. I mean, later in the chapter, she drugs two cupcakes and tells Ron and Harry what to do with the bodies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, she's... No is not an option for her right now. She will... The ends justify the means for her right now. Okay. So to create this distraction, Harry um, lights a firework and um, kind of throws it into Goyle's potion, um, which, going back to our potions discussion earlier, this one is a swelling solution. I mean... Does this really sound like a real potion? It just, or is it just kind of a joke for this scene? It kind of seems like a useless idea. Mm. Why would you? Need are there are there instances in medicine where it where it helps to swell something? I don't think so. Well, wh- wh- I'm looking up to see where it was otherwise used, but no, doesn't look like it's been used in the series other than right now. Why would you need to swell something? Exactly. Maybe you gotta like. Get some pus out or something? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you have to get the yeah, the inflammation out, gone and everything. I don't know. But <laughs> any either, either way, I love this scene because I'm just like, Harry's a baller. Like, what a shot. And then making it explode and everyone's like got these huge body features going on. I thought it was pretty hilarious. But the language is he lobs it. Design. What would he have done if it, if, it didn't, uh, if it didn't get in the cauldron? Would have exploded somewhere else. So, you know, it would have still been a distraction but not quite as hilarious. Maybe it would have blown someone's arm off. That would not have been fun. 
<laughs> that would have <laughs> been, been pretty funny. But you we now Skelly know, Grove. you know, Skelly Grove, they would have been able to put it back. Exactly. Things are <laughs> fine. Don't even worry. <laughs> Madam Pomfrey doesn't ask questions. She doesn't. She just gets the job done like a good nurse. <laughs> However, Snape does ask questions and he immediately, kind of, he, once he's solved the problems and given everyone else um, a, an antidote to make their swellings go down, um, he, he takes the firework out of the cauldron and says, if I ever find out who threw this, I shall make sure that person is expelled. And, you know, Snape is looking right at Harry at this moment. Which is a great way to get people to come forward as well. Yeah. But he never chases it up. I'm always kind of amazed that, you know, Snape makes all of these threats and this is an actual, you know, this is a moment where Harry is properly doing something wrong, not just Snape being mad about something that doesn't really count. But it never actually, you know, gets chased up. He never even gets a detention for it. Yeah, because he's totally using his mind-reading skills right now and he knows. Do you think maybe he was t- uh, Dumbledore told him not to, not to interfere with whatever Harry's doing? Do you think maybe Dumbledore knows what they're doing? Possibly. Would be interesting. I mean, Dumbledore, we've talked about this a lot, how Dumbledore just kind of knows everything mm-hmm. that goes on. Tends to follow them places. Yep. It does kind mm-hmm. of beg the question, does no one ever clean the toilets? <laughs> you know? It ha- no, well, not it's... this one, because it's out of order, and no one wants to mess with Myrtle, so... This is true. <laughs> but it's there for a whole month, and no one ever discovers it. It's quite strange. Anyway... A week later, the dueling club is announced, um, and it's uh, on a notice board, and it says that it will be the first meeting of the club will be that night. Um, and later that day, they go down into the great hall and find a golden stage instead of the dining tables, um, and most of the school appear to be there to watch. So you know, this dueling club is a, a real interesting thing to happen at Hogwarts. It doesn't happen very often, um, and I think it's Hermione says that Flitwick was a dueling champion when he was young. And again, this would be a really interesting story to read on Pottermore. Do you think we might get it when we get these chapters? I hope so. I, I would really like to hear about, like, Flitwick's, like, just overall his background, but also, like, this this journey of being an awesome dueler. Yeah, I mean, wasn't he between Gryffindor and Ravenclaw? Yep. He was a hot stall. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure early in his youth as a as a smaller person... He had, to, he had to defend himself, and he grew, and I'm sure he has a great story. Mm-hmm. So Harry says, you know, I don't care who it is as long as it's not. And <sighs> then, of course, it turns out to be Lockhart. Not only Lockhart, but Lockhart and Snape. Why would um, Snape help out instead of Flitwick if Flitwick is a dueling champion? Is it just a chance for Snape to take, you know, to beat Gil- Gilderoy down and put him in his place? I think it's partly that, but also, like, maybe, again, sort of Dumbledore wanting Snape to, like, keep an eye on everything. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. But then why would you use Snape and not McGonagall or someone? Surely she would be able to keep an eye on them as well. Because McGonagall has no time or no patience to deal with Lockhart. That's true, okay. And Snape probably, like you said in the beginning, would love relish this opportunity to like put Snape in his place, uh, to put Lockhart in his place. While McGonagall's like, "Huh, I'm gonna go read my books." Yep. <laughs> also, we know just Dumbledore has incredible faith in Snape to set things right, um, and he is an expert dueler, as we know. And uh, in a way, it sets up Snape to use the the first combative spell of the series that will um, that Harry will use. Of course, I, I read this 
um, somewhere else. I think it was either on the forums or the archives, or it, maybe even like Twitter. I'm not entirely sure, but this is this wasn't my point. I just want to point that out that Snape is actually the first person to teach them Expelliarmus, Harry's favorite spell, the one oh. that will ultimately be the downfall of Voldemort so many times, and Snape is the one to teach them. Hmm. That's that's an awesome point. I never realized that. How profound yeah. that is. That's great. It's, it's true. Amazing. It's kind of like uh, Snape said, like handing it down in a way. Man, I love Snape. He's so great. <laughs> but if there was one thing, you know, if he if his whole entire point in this book is to to follow Lily's, you know, follow Lily's son around and protect him, then to teach him Expelliarmus is that just perfect moment. And it happens in this chapter. <laughs> awesome. Yep. And uh, Rosie, I hope it's okay, but I, there were a few more points in the chapter that I found that I was hoping we could uh, touch on. Yep, of course. Go ahead. So on page 192, there's a section where Draco and Harry start their duel. And Harry gets hit with a spell, and he says it, that it felt like being hit over the head with a saucepan. <laughs> and <laughs> remembering that... I was wondering, how does Harry know what it's like to be hit with a saucepan? Because oh. he's abused. <laughs> oh, wait a second. <laughs> Child abuse. Petunia Dursley hit him over the head. <laughs> Maybe a tie did. with her saucepan. Yeah. So I just wanted to bring this up as yet another, uh, you know, why, you know, metaphoric language is, is always important, but when it comes through Harry's consciousness, we have to assume he has some association with saucepans to make this connection. Yeah. I, I think know. this is, I've said before that I didn't really believe that the the Dursleys were that violent against him, but I think this is kind of the first proof that we've seen that, you know, maybe they actually were and we just didn't see it. Yeah. Poor Harry. So I just thought I'd bring it up, but you know what? He's not he's not dwelling on it. He's just making the connections. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um and then and then you then we went into the duel and you have Draco and Harry finally in front of the entire student body. Um and there's a, there's a section on page 193 where Snape comes over like a large and malevolent bat. And I was wondering, uh, I know before the seventh book came out, there were a lot of theories out there that Snape was an animagus bat of some kind. But there are so many different connections to him as a bat in the series anyway, even if he might not actually be one. So why do you think that metaphor exists? Why does kind of Joe beat this through to us? Why is he, why is he bat-like? Um, I think bats have just this association of being quite creepy. They've always, you know, they're a Halloween kind of staple. Um, they're they're associated with vampires. They're associated with all kind of creepy caves um, and nighttime, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so also because Snape is quite a dark, looming figure, it kind of works with his capes and everything that, you know, he swoops around like a bat, so why not make a connection to it? It's quite a good description of someone you want to be a dark creepy character right yeah and he's got his big cloak and i'm just thinking about the way that bats communicate with each other it's almost like um um not occlumency what am i thinking of but you know something like that the legilimens they can they can sense each other's thoughts so it makes sense that he would have a uh, a special ability for that Maybe due to this connection. And doesn't he, in the seventh book, jump out of the castle like a bat? Yeah, he jumps out through the window. Yeah. Why? Yeah. why? After Whether that's in the book or not. It's definitely in the movie, but yeah. Right. I wonder why she didn't make him a bat, because I think that would be really cool. She, she, she should have made him one. Made Maybe his. she didn't want to overuse the uh, 
the an- Animagus. Illegal Animagus, yeah. Form, yeah. Yeah, he's already got, like, Bulagilomancy and Aquilomancy is a pretty um, difficult gift to grasp. Mm. So I don't, I think she wanted to make sure, like, it wasn't too unbelievable. Maybe before he fell in love with Lily, well, he fell in love with her quite early, but maybe if he hadn't fallen in love with Lily, his Patronus would have been a bat. Yeah. Oh. Well, I mean, it's a doe because, oh, I search, right, because, yeah, I got it's you. It's a doe now. because of Lily. <laughs> right. Yeah, th- probably so. That would make sense. I'd agree, of course. I mean, we, we, we really can't know what it would be before the dough, but because of all these connections, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. So then then Harry and Draco continue to fight. He uses Serpent Sorcia, and the snake comes out and begins to attack Justin Finch Fletchley. Um, and then Harry, of course, calls it back using his parcel tongue. But now I'm, I'm just thinking back to the fact that after, after it all happens he talks to Ron about how he had freed the boa constrictor from its constraints at the zoo um, and totally getting away from the, the parcel, parcel math questions if you guys want to talk about that Harry uh, you know frees that snake from captivity or is Harry some kind of uh, environmentalist as far as uh, Voldemort is attacking pets he has this history is Harry for animals no <laughs> the answer is no, no. Okay, I kind of, I, I kind of in part just wanted to throw it in there because of uh, the fact that I've been associated with the environmentalist trend. I don't even know how that happens. He keeps Hedwig in a cage. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, no, I, I like animals and I like the environment, but I'm, I'm definitely not as uh, supportive of it as I am. You're going to start getting emails from like environmentalist <laughs> groups, like wanting you to like come speak at their events and and, and Harry Potter. I, I would yeah. do it. <laughs> Use your knowledge and your your fierce defense of the animal rights campaign. I mean, somebody somebody friended me on Facebook from from Greenpeace or, or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I mean, Rosie, any other thoughts uh, on this part of the this part of the chapter towards the end? Um, not really. Just you know the whole parcel mouth thing and the fact that you know how do you not realize that you're hissing rather than speaking? Surely, I mean. When yeah. you speak, you hear your words. So is it like, I don't know, do you guys watch Doctor Who at all? It's the kind of TARDIS translation matrix that, you know, you think you're saying one thing and in fact you're actually saying something else. I watch Doctor Who. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I've not, I hear it's a great show. A lot of Harry Potter fans like it. Yeah, so hopefully at least most of our listeners will know about it. It's all right. <laughs> They'll make that connection. Yeah, it's just, it's just really fascinating. Um, and then towards the end of the chapter, um, Harry is really, really upset about everything. The fact that the school is now viewing him in the slide as the, the heir of Slytherin. And he hears a little voice in his head telling him about how, weren't you, um, didn't the sorting hat nearly put you in Slytherin? And at first I talk, took that little voice to be just, um, you know, Harry's angry at himself and he's just, that little voice is just his own consciousness. But is Harry actually hearing voices? I know it's a stretch. But there's another scene that I was thinking of in uh, Half-Blood Prince where Harry keeps talking about the monster inside of him um, in regards to his, like, love for, for uh, Ginny. Um, so he's got, he's got all this, this stuff inside him. Is Harry actually crazy? Does he have voices in his head? <laughs> well, not necessarily the monster thing, but, you know, maybe could it be the Horcrux in his head as well? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, definitely possible. Ooh, I didn't even consider that, but that is an excellent uh, connection. 
And that would, that would make total sense because you know that the Horcrux, uh, the locket at least does that. It, it makes him think negative thoughts. So this one yeah. being actually inside mm-hmm. him can become a little voice. Wow. Highlighting all of his negative moments. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like this repeats, so I'm going to keep looking for this little voice, and maybe it's the Horcrux inside his head speaking. Interesting. All right, so now Chapter 12, the Polyjuice Potion. And I was really excited about this because... We've been talking about potions so much, it just makes sense that we should get into the proper form of it. So, at the oh, we didn't talk about it at the end of the last chapter. What uh, what happens? Which is that Harry uh, Harry has an unfortunate uh, run-in with the Hufflepuffs, who are who believe he is a uh, who believe he's the heir of Slytherin. He actually is hiding in the invisibility section of the library, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, that was really clever. Yeah, as uh, as Ernie McMillan and these other Hufflepuffs plot about how he is definitely the heir of Slytherin, because I mean, yeah, Ernie's a d bag here. I, he's really annoying. <laughs> he is. He's not. He's not properly representing Hufflepuff. Exactly. This maybe, is why, like, I didn't like Hufflepuff for a long time. We have all these like idiots like saying the dumb things. So yeah, but but then again, I see him still coming out of concern for for Justin. I you know I just. You're right, though. This is where we first get our, our Hufflepuff view, and that kind of, like, gives us a prejudice throughout the series. Yeah. But anyway, Harry, flustered, runs out from behind the books and just kind of accosts them, and the Hufflepuffs are just like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, he's going to kill us all. <laughs> yeah. and, and Ernie just kind of steps up, and he's just like, you know what, I'm a... You can trace my family lineage back to uh, ages of pure blood. I don't care about your blood status. I just want to see Justin. And then, and then they, they try to block him and say, you're not going to see him. But then, of course, he, he, runs, he runs off, and he does find Justin <laughs> in a very unfortunate circumstance between uh, he's petrified and, and so is uh, nearly headless Nick. Yep. And then, then Peeves just comes, terrible, terrible timing, and just alerts the entire school. Then they find Harry there. Um, and, and again, we get these characters like Ginny before, who was so upset, and then Fred and George scaring her, we have Harry in this terrible situation that gets even even worse and worse. So I just thought the way that you know Joe manipulates drama, um, it was just yeah, classic. Exactly. You know, yeah. Can, can I read um, Peeves' little song? I just thought it yeah. was really funny. <laughs> okay, oh Potter, you rotter, oh what have you done? You're killing all students. You think it's good fun? I I just think I I think they really missed out on not including Peeves in the movies. I think that would have been. Mm-hmm. A good addition to the movies, especially seeing he was cast in the first one, and they filmed yeah, yeah. some things, and they just never put them in. I, I mean, know. Rick Mayall would have been amazing, um, and it's so, such a shame that that character is lost from all of the movies. Mm-hmm. I, I know, I, I see it though. You know, he's kind of this. Uh, in a way, he is just reiterating stuff that we can already get yeah. with the main characters, and they probably would have had to spend a lot of money making him. We'll just consider him like a, a book extra for fans. <laughs> <laughs> he sure is, but, you know, he pops up in these certainly chaotic moments. Yeah. Um, just real quick, what do you think of Nearly Headless Nick being able to be petrified? That seems incredible to me. Yeah, did we did we briefly talk about this last episode? I feel we, like we, we did. We did, yeah. Yeah, and there were, there's a lot of comments in the forums that I was reading through, um, like some people suggesting it just, like, it just works because like Myrtle is able to like splash water on them, like just like sort of 
Oh, well, I guess this was more about the the mandrakes working on the ghost, not about the ghost actually being petrified. Yeah, you guys talked about how uh, him being petrified and how they gave him the mandrake solution. Well, I think uh, it's really kind of funny, actually, because at the end of the the chapter 11, the students become horrified by the fact that not only are the living in danger, but also are the dead. Yeah, because what kind of what kind of monster could be able to do that? Must be pretty horrible. No one is safe. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of ridiculous too. It's crazy just the idea that something could uh, be so powerful that it taps into both worlds that your own soul isn't safe. It's kind of it reminded me of the Dementors and the fact that they can steal your soul so that not only is your you know your normal life you, you die but also your afterlife is just non-existent because you're absorbed. Hmm. So that seems to be the most horrible thing in the series is when something can can touch you in death. Yeah. But uh, anyway. Moving on to chapter 12, the Polyjuice Potion, um, it begins right off the bat with Harry being escorted by Professor McGonagall to Dumbledore's office because he was discovered at the scene of the crime. And, Again. Yeah, very <laughs> unfortunately, and he just have to, has to speak to Dumbledore. Um, so he gets in. He, this is the first time we're in, the, in Dumbledore's office, and he, he loves the fact that there are sounds everywhere. There are the silver instruments. It's the, the most interesting office he's ever seen, he pretty much says. And then he finds the sorting hat, and he just kind of boldly goes over because he's, he's worried about this, about if he is the heir of Slytherin or if he's connected to it. He puts it on, and he, he has a conversation with the hat. Um, and the hat basically reiterates, yes, uh, you would have done well in Slytherin. But, and then it falls limp in his hands. But now I'm wondering, um, could he have had a larger, a longer conversation with the hat about maybe the weather? Or... <laughs> Does does the hat maybe it can only talk within a a constraint of sorting stuff? I I think he could actually have a conversation with him for a long time. I think it's I think it's almost like the the portraits how you can talk to the portraits. The the portraits can yeah. have conversations with you, so I I don't know why the hat wouldn't be able to. So I think he would. Well, I, I think I think we've talked about the fact that the hat is actually like a manifestation of the founder's brains, mm-hmm. as it says. So it almost has more of a physical conscious than the uh, than the portraits do because they're almost like programs. Mm. I think we've talked about and decided so they can only talk about certain stuff. And we know that the hat is aware as well. I mean, when it's creating its songs, it talks about what's going on in the outside world as well. So it, it listens to when Dumbledore is talking in his office. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think Harry would definitely have been able to have a longer conversation with the hat. Yeah, and we know, of course, that it gets all its uh, knowledge from basically sitting on everyone's heads. or I, I don't think it reads the newspaper. No. <laughs> or maybe Dumbledore talks to it in private. <laughs> but the basically what the hat said about Harry being in Slytherin brought up, you know, I, I kind of want to talk about the old question again. Was, was Harry potentially in Slytherin because the hat sensed Voldemort's soul in him and didn't really know what to make of it? Or because Harry's natural character, he would have done well in Slytherin? I still very much think it's detecting Voldemort's soul in Harry. You don't think he's crafty? I still think that... I think he could have done well in Slytherin, but not necessarily... That doesn't necessarily mean he would have been evil if he had been in Slytherin. Um, But Harry is so much a part of his friendships and his relationships with everyone in Gryffindor that if Harry had been in Slytherin, he would be a very different person. What do you think, John, as a Slytherin? Does Voldemort... Well, hold on. Does Voldemort's soul give him Slytherin qualities, or does he just naturally have it? Well, I remember a line, um, I don't know if it's necessarily from the movie, 
I might be just quoting movie canon, but maybe it's in the book as well. At the end of Chamber of Secrets, doesn't Dumbledore say, you have a lot of qualities like Lord Voldemort, a certain, uh, you know, disregard for the school rules, uh, you know, a cunning, a quickness? Yeah, I think that's uh, definitely in the book. Okay, so... Yeah. so the, the links are always meant to be there. So, yeah, I, th- so, I think he definitely has Slytherin qualities, so I, I think he would have done well in Slytherin if he was picked and if the hat wasn't detecting Voldemort's soul. Right. And if he had friends, if he had better friend relationships in Slytherin, it's possible he would have gone there because it seems like the whole reason he went for Gryffindor was because he had this good good relationship with Ron and a bad one with Draco going in. Yeah. He's been warned against Slytherin House. So maybe if he had gone to Hogwarts and not known anything, um, even though his his knowledge is very limited, if he hadn't known anything, maybe he would have still gone and chosen Slytherin. Yeah, I agree. And I think the uh, the ethical questions of this book, kind of choice over nature, is stronger if we consider Harry like Voldemort, because then we know that it, it's you know it's really our choices, Harry, that make us who we are. But if his, if his nature is inherently better for Gryffindor, then we can't make that argument as much because then we can say, oh, his choice was informed by a better nature. Mm-hmm. Anyway, going on to uh, something else, he's, he's kind of waiting around in the office and he sees Fox for the first time, a decrepit-looking bird, and he starts to think, oh, the worst thing that could possibly happen would be for him, <laughs> the bird to just die while I'm here. And then it does. <laughs> uh, it bursts into flames, in fact. Which is just pretty terrible, and Harry's just trying to—he's looking for some water to do something. Just to, <laughs> I to think save it's so it. funny that he like looks for some water, like that's going to solve the problem. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> and and then just Dumbledore walks in, perfect timing, and and Harry's just at this point he's devastated. There's nothing he can do, um, but but you know, but then Dumbledore comes in and he pretty much so- solves the riddle and says that oh you, you've seen him on a burning day, and then Fox beautifully rises from the ashes. But at the same time. You know, Harry's wand has a phoenix feather in. Surely he would know what a phoenix is and that they occasionally burst into flame. Surely he should have known and not been too too worried about what was going on. Would he, though? I, I guess not. Well, I know what a phoenix is before I read Harry Potter, and I would have known that. <laughs> well, if, if Harry had known, he probably would have been less horrified. Yeah. But, uh... Yeah, but how do you think the how do you think that life works with the phoenix once it dies? Is it the same phoenix that just kind of does it keep the memories of the past life, or does it kind of restart each one with a new um, with a new memory, kind of a new being? And then if uh, if Fox is such a loyal creature to Dumbledore, does Dumbledore have to like consistently get the get the bird's loyalty, or does it have a does it remember Dumbledore from past lives? Hmm. I think it would remember. Um, yeah, I, th- I think too. Yeah. Kind of general accepted um, phoenix law, I guess, um, has always kind of depicted a phoenix as having a continuous life. So it may be reborn, but it's still the same phoenix and it still has the same knowledge and personality and everything that it had before. Yeah, it's just kind of part of its individual life cycle, but it's yeah. still like the same in, like same thoughts and everything. That's cool. I mean, it's kind of a kind of a technical question, and I'm sure it might even be in a magical beast somewhere to find them. But yeah, maybe. Yeah, I just I just wasn't sure. I don't think it addressed that in Fantastic Beasts. But no. Um, then after Harry uh, goes to Dumbledore's office and he tells you know Dumbledore pretty famously 
Um, well, actually, Dumbledore asks him, do you have anything to tell me? No, Professor, nothing at all. And then he, um, he goes to bed that night and he wakes up the next morning and uh, Hermione actually wakes them up. And I just thought this was so unfair. Girls can go in boys' dormitories, but boys can't go in the girls' ones. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. What's up with that? <laughs> We're just more uh, trustworthy. <laughs> I mean, that's probably fair. Oh, it's completely fair, and I and I definitely get it. But um, it just has it has certain implications because it just kind of sets up the standard that girls are more mature than boys, um, and. Uh, that's just that seems to be the case at Hogwarts, or that at least seems to be what's being propagated. And what about what about boys who are just scared of girls? <laughs> they can come in at well, any my moment. My experience in you know in an English primary school was that the boys loved trying to push other boys into girls' changing rooms, whereas the girls would be perfectly happy to stay away as far as they could from the boys' rooms. So you know, <laughs> there's that whole whole thing there, which is actually you know coming from truth. So. Yeah, I mean that that makes sense. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust guys. But doesn't doesn't Ron or someone try to get into the girls' dormitory at one point, and the stairs yeah. just become like a slide? A slide, yeah. The, yeah, the glacier's bell, yeah. That's uh, that's really cool. Um, I can't wait for that. <laughs> but anyway, this this sends up descent to create a gender hierarchy, and I don't know how I feel about it. But nonetheless, it's there. Hedwig swoops in with uh, with a gift for Harry. And and Harry's just like, oh, you, you you forgive me now, and I was just thinking, Hedwig, get over yourself. It's been it's been months. Harry couldn't control what happened. Yeah, she is a lot of. She's attitude. a drama queen. She is. Um, and she has in her beak uh, a gift from the Dursleys, who I guess are were instructed by Dumbledore to to give a Christmas gift because I I don't see why they would otherwise. Right. Um, and I believe it's just a toothpick and a note asking Harry if he could figure out if he could just stay for the summer vacation as well. <laughs> Which I'm sure he would be happy to do, but... Yeah. yeah. So would have uh, Voldemort. Right. It's another connection they have. Mm-hmm. But uh, back to, the, back to my, my questions. What, at what point did the Muggle Post cross over to Owl Post? Um, hmm. Does Hedwig kind of pick this up at the at the Muggle post office that's closest to Hogwarts? I mean, are, if they are in fact addressing it to Hogwarts, which maybe, is probably a weird experience. Or do you think Hedwig? Oh well, I guess the Dursleys would not really welcome Hedwig. So I always assumed that that was what why they actually got a present though was that Hedwig had gone to Privet Drive and in order for the Dursleys to seem inconspicuous, they would have tried to get rid of her as soon as possible. So they gave her what they got nearest something. Right, that makes sense. That that seems most likely. <laughs> um, but I think, I mean, doesn't um, Hogsmeade have a post office that would you you could address something to Hogsmeade post office through Muggle Post, um, maybe, or to the nearest post office, and then it kind of gets transferred over there. Is that true? It seems like they would need some system set up for that. Yeah. Because Hogsmeade is a. Uh, is kind of a wizard and muggle village? Yeah. Or? No, Hogsmeade is meant to be the only... is a pure wizard village, isn't it? So maybe it would go to... I don't know, maybe Diagon Alley or something in, in London. Maybe there's some kind of base. There'll be some kind of muggle wizard sorting office somewhere. <laughs> right. Hmm. Or maybe maybe have... uh, there's a wizard working in every muggle post office yeah, and I... they just can kind of tell when oh it's... My God. I was just about to it's say like that. in Men in Black. It's like in Men in Black where they have aliens working in all of the post offices. Yeah. <laughs> Right, Sorry. right behind the scenes. Yeah. Except you have owls with, like, little male hats. 
with a you know just telling off the other owls to work faster and, and then they, <laughs> oh man so after after this morning they go over to the the Christmas feast and it's just uh it's beautiful they're um Hagrid's once again uh drinking a little bit too much uh than he should um getting a little bit merrier merrier every goblet he drinks I believe the line is Draco's very happy with the gift he has at his table um just trying to be rude, but, you know, Harry, Hermione, and Ron aren't listening. They're focused on the plan, and Hermione basically gives Ron and Harry two cupcakes, which he's filled with sleeping potion, and just tells them to, you know, leave them for Crab and Goyle, and just, you know, take their shoes after, they're, uh, after they've fallen off. Or I don't know if she said uh, specifically to take the shoes, but basically lays out the plan for them, and they're just stunned because they didn't realize how much she had thought it through. And that there were still so many things that could go wrong with it, but Hermione's pretty uh, pretty clear-headed throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, but but the fact of the matter is, she did drug these cupcakes and did tell them to basically take Crab and Goyle out, take a bit of their hair, and just stuff them in the closet. Yeah. What has happened to Hermione? <laughs> what's 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 going on with her? I love it. I mean, <laughs> such a bad influence. <laughs> exactly. Mm. She gets it done though. I mean, it's kind of like, that's kind of the irony, right? That she does the whole planning. She does everything. She gets the ingredients. She works it all out. She does the potions. She sets up how to get rid of Crab and Goyle. And she's the only one it doesn't end up working correctly on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, she yep. does all the work, but it's Harry and Ron are the only ones that end up going to. I mean, we'll talk about that next episode, but. I didn't think about it until uh, you, you kind of started talking about it, Caleb, but I feel like if Kat was here, she'd be going, she'd be talking about how this is kind of setting up the gender stereotype of women know how to get stuff done, but sometimes the guys just kind of mosey along and get stuff done for them. Um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely a point to be made. That seems to at least be the effect with Ron and Harry. They just kind of, even though they end up infiltrating Slytherin House, for the most part, they just kind of leave it up to Hermione, and she gets it done. Right. But then again, there's obviously a point, you know, in Prisoner of Azkaban where Ron's the one that's um, <clears throat> stuck in the hospital wing, and it's Harry and Hermione that go off and handle yeah. it. They they each have their moments throughout the series. Right. That's true. And they true. also each have their failures throughout the series, so... Hermione, yeah, but Hermione's really gone through a transition through these through these books. In the first book, Definitely. she's... Uh, you know, she, she feels like no one likes her. In the second, she's really taking initiative with things. And we know in the third, she's going to go through major changes. Um, might even get a little angry <laughs> towards, the, towards the end. Mm-hmm. But in any case, Ron and Harry follow along with her plan. Uh, Hermione heads up to the bathroom to put in some of the last uh, lacewing flies to get the potion ready. But uh, everything goes to plan. Harry and Ron successfully knock out... Uh, Crab and Goyle take some of their hairs, take their shoes, uh, put them in the closet. Um, it's interesting that they didn't think to take Crab and Goyle's robes as well, um, and yet they didn't know that Hermione was going to take them. But it would have been a pretty awkward situation if they had to consider taking all their clothes. Right. So, you know, luckily we didn't get any of that. Hermione just happened to have some old Slytherin robes <laughs> in the bathroom, convenient. which I thought was. Uh, was very convenient. I think we can say about this whole chapter, there are many little convenient things like the uh, swelling potion that just kind of uh, help the narrative along, let's say. Right. Um, But anyway, they they get in there and they brew the polyjuice. They put a little bit of uh, each of the hairs that they find in each other's glasses 
we know it's not going to work out so well with Hermione. But then the polyjuice changes color every time a certain bit of essence goes in, and I can only assume that's based on the character of the person. So I wanted to ask all of you, like, what uh, what color would your polyjuice turn into? <laughs> I think mine would be a shiny, cool blue. Hmm. I have no idea. Yeah, neither do I. <laughs> it's got to be, maybe it's your favorite color. It's a color that best matches your uh, your essence, I would suppose. Well, my favorite color is green, but I don't know whether that would be too good. I guess mine would be purple, looking around my room and seeing how much purple is around here. So. Hmm. I, don't know. I don't really have a favorite color, so. I see you, I see you as red or orange. Maybe just because you have an orange icon on my Skype, but that really works for you. <laughs> I think like a darkish, yeah, darkish red or orange. Like, yeah. Well, in any case, uh, Crab and Goyles is, one is colored like a booger, and the other one is uh, a dark murky brown, so. Ugly. We, yeah. So if we didn't know that they were ugly enough on the outside, J.K. Rowling has confirmed that they are also ugly on the inside. <laughs> Which is, uh, you know... We're really stereotyping Slytherins here. Right. Um, but this is yet again another way that she kind of builds that prejudice in the reader of hating Slytherins because they are rotten to the core, as you can see by their polyjuice potions. In any case, they, uh, they each drink their potion. They, they go into separate stalls, of course, because they realize if we're in the same stall, it's going to get really crowded here because Millicent Bolstrode <laughs> is no pixie, <laughs> I think the line is. Um, but then, then they change, and uh, their entire body changes except for and even the, even their vocal cords change, so it's got to be their. Uh, the only thing that doesn't remains constant is their brain, or maybe their spiritual essence. But it's really just so fascinating because I assume with all potions, this one was created over time, you know, figuring out everything getting changed, but your but your brain. So, what what do you guys think of that of the of the spirit continuing? Does this does the fact that t- taking this potion not changing some essential spirit, speak to some sort of spiritual belief of the series or some sort of spiritual truth? I don't think so. I think it's just that it it changes your appearance and, you know, your vocal cords would change accordingly because if your your throat and kind of your chest area expands, then so would your vocal cords. Um, I think it's just, yeah, it, it's physical changes based on appearance rather than, you know, mind and personality. It just it's, I, I, I say it like this because it sounds like your uh, your insides change. So I can only assume that Harry's brain changes size to the size of Crab's brain, right? So that would so shouldn't he be thinking differently, or do, is there some sort of spirit that remains that is not physical? It's not know. an easy question. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think the brain would change. You think yeah, the brain would be the thing that remains? Yeah. I mean, I mean that's that's also possible. And then I'm thinking that like, whoever brewed this potion went through many, many different trials in which only the brain was left unchanged. Mm. Do you think that they could have made like a cloning potion then, where where you would take this potion and become the other person? I don't see why not. It, it seems like all it would take would be changing of the brain chemistry, or to match everything, you know. But presumably that would wear off after time as well. So, yeah, weird. Right. Magic is a complex thing. It's all science. I mean, we, we can pretty much just figure it out with science, Rosie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. But anyway, so they, they, they transform into their uh, into respective people. Hermione does not come out of her stall for some reason, but Harry and Ron are just 
okay, we'll, we'll go on ahead of you. So they try in vain to find uh, the Slytherin common room. They head over towards the dungeons, and they see a Ravenclaw come up and just kind of ask her, oh, do you know where Do you know where the Slytherin common room is? But she's a, she's a Ravenclaw, and I feel like they should have noticed that too. <laughs> yet they yet they didn't. But then we see we see Percy down there. So I'm I'm willing to bl- wait. But that's weird. We know that the Ravenclaw um, tower is somewhere completely up. It's kind of higher up in the castle, right? Or is it near the dungeons? The Ravenclaw common room. It's a, it's in a tower. It's in a tower. Yeah. Okay. Because I was seeing that Ravenclaw student come up, and my thoughts immediately went to. Uh, Penelope Clearwater. Um, I was wondering if the fact that Percy was down in the dungeons was because he was with Penelope, not quite why. Not that he was actually looking for um, the heir of Slytherin, which is what Draco says he was doing. They're being sneaky in the dungeons, is that what you're trying to say? Yes. <laughs> Who does Percy end up with? Who does he... Uh, uh, probably someone boring. But, but isn't he hooking up with Penelope Clearwater all throughout this book? I feel like we heard that. Yeah. I don't know if he ends up with her, though. That, may, that might be why he's sneaking around. I always assumed... I mean, are they actually down in the dungeons by this point? I always assumed that, you know, the Ravenclaw was just coming up from the the feast. She Well, she was coming out of the dungeon, and then they went down in. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, if Ravenclaw Tower is somewhere else, then maybe I'm wrong. Or maybe, maybe uh, Joe hadn't fleshed out where Ravenclaw Tower was yet. And I'm right. To answer your question, though, John, um, the chick that Percy ends up marrying's name is Audrey. Oh. <laughs> so just wow. like some random character we never know anything about. So it's not true love from this point. <laughs> Sadly, no. <laughs> so they finally managed to get in the Slytherin common room thanks to Draco. The, uh, the password happens to be pureblood. You know, <laughs> very, uh, very timely given the fact that students are being attacked all over the all over the school, so I wonder who makes up the passwords. Because if it is indeed the head of house, such as Snape, he's really not—he's uh, not being considered at all. Yeah. So to what's going it on? It would make sense for it to be the head of house. I thought it was the prefects. I thought the prefects issue the passwords, like to the students. But I don't. Does it ever actually say the prefects do? Well, do I thought um, when when the password changes to Mimbleus Mimbletonia for. Um, for Neville, it's because Ron and Hermione are the prefects and they're being nice to him. Mm. Hmm. I might be wrong. Don't know. Well, if it is indeed the, the head of house, then we might have to reconsider what we think about Snape because it, it seems particularly unsnapish. He is still a Slytherin and he still did fall in with that, that crowd, so you have to... But then he is half-blood, so I don't know. I always assumed it was the prefects. We can see from that that one word, though, that basically where the Slytherin house aligns themselves with this whole tragedy. Yeah. So, you know, how could Harry have done well in Slytherin? It just doesn't seem to make sense. But anyway, they get in, they get in the house, or the, the common room, rather, and Draco begins to go on and on about how um, there, was a, there was an issue at the ministry with Ron's dad and hands the newspaper to, to Ron and then to Harry, um, and then we, you know, we quickly learn that Draco actually isn't involved, but that Lucius Malfoy has been hiding dark stuff in his house, and Ron's going to use this information to help. But then they're slowly transforming faster than they realize because it took them so long to find the common room. And then they, they run out in a flash, 
Um, presumably Draco never realizes, though. Um, though Harry and Ron hear Crab and Goyle, like, banging on the door as they run up, so they're clearly trapped. I hope they figure out how to get out, even though they're not really the smartest. But then they come upon, back to the bathroom, they come upon Hermione as a cat, because Millicent Bulstrode loves cats. And the transformation went horribly wrong, and they're going to decide to go to Madame Pomfrey, who luckily doesn't ask enough questions. <laughs> but uh, any thoughts to that end of the chapter? Did anything in the Slytherin common room strike you guys? Not really. I like how it's under the lake, though. Yeah, it's kind of exactly what I expected it to be, so it's really good. Yeah, same. Very, like, cold and... It's kind of the opposite of the Hufflepuff uh, common room, but which is also underground. But it's it's got warm colors and and lots yeah. of fluff, and this one seems very bare. I think the difference is yeah. meant to be like the the Slytherin one is kind of like a vault. It's like um, a, a dungeon. Well, it is a dungeon, but it's it's meant to be castle and meant to be you know very cold and not a nice place. Whereas the Hufflepuff one is meant to be more like you know a, a badger's. Um, a badger set so it's kind of a warm earthy place um, well i mean also think about like how the way rolling is riding she's casting R- gryffindor and slytherin against one another and especially like here with i mean obviously harry represent gryffindor and like slytherin is submerged it's beneath the castle it's underneath and she puts gryffindor in a very high place like up yeah. above the castle there's a lot of um the way she where she chooses those common rooms i think is very um intentional Mm-hmm. Well, it, it kind of makes Gryffindor a mere ra- Ravenclaw a little bit. And to the intelligence thing I was talking about before, we get these two different intelligence intelligences, kind of wit versus instinct, raised above. And uh, and Hufflepuff and Slytherin seem to be below because I'm not I'm not really sure why they're there, but maybe just because their houses aren't necessarily rooted in a kind of intelligence, but in a in a kind of uh, a way of being, maybe. Mm, yeah. I, I can't. I don't. I don't know exactly what the uh, the connection between those two is to follow through with that theory. I think it's just more like it's it's four points on a a square. There's two up high and two down low, just because that's the way neater. it is. Yeah, symmetrical. All right. So there ends our uh, our chapter discussion for this week. It's a, a pretty hefty a pretty hefty discussion. We have a lot of content. So if anything interested you of uh, either of those chapter discussions, head over to the forums and we uh, will read your comments in the next episode. What if? But Professor Dumbledore, what if the Sorting Hat had put me in Slytherin? It is our choices, Harry, that show who we truly are. So we're going to go ahead and move into our special feature for this week. So this is where we take a look at a couple of questions and we'll eventually throw it out to you guys think about what if something would have gone a little differently than the way it actually did in the book so the first what if question that we're taking a look at is what if harry was indeed the heir to slytherin and he just didn't know it so what would that have sort of meant for this story as a whole um other things that go along with um the possibility of harry being that heir of slytherin so the first thing I was thinking of is how would this have first changed Riddle's dynamic and the way he was going about doing things? Because obviously Riddle is the heir of Slytherin and not Harry. So if, if indeed Harry would have been the heir of Slytherin, how would that have changed what Riddle was doing, the way he would have done it? Um, would he have wanted Harry to join him even more? What do you guys think? 
Well, if you think about it, technically Harry is the heir of Slytherin, because he's got a part of Riddle in him. Wow, that's very true. I've never <laughs> thought about it that way. That's, um, that's awesome. They're both the heir. Yeah. But Riddle, obviously, we've, we've talked about whether the Horcruxes can sense each other before, but um, at this point, obviously, they don't, and Riddle would never have planned to have the extra Horcrux within Harry. Um, so I think that's obviously why that, that, that dynamic hasn't changed. Um, but yeah, if, if Riddle knew Harry himself was like evil and the heir of Slytherin in the same way that Draco was kind of seeking him out at the beginning and wanting to kind of seek out the higher power. Um, yeah, I think he would have been more interested in getting Harry to join him. Mm -hmm. I mean, doesn't, don't you think that heir of Slytherin also refers not only to being in the line of Salazar Slytherin, but also having his his beliefs. See, right. I, I don't think Harry would have his beliefs, though, because I, I just don't think that's Harry's character. I, I don't know. So that, that was one of my questions, is, you know, if he would have, and Harry would have eventually found out that he was the heir of Slytherin, would it have made him sort of go back and, you know, want to find out more about Salazar Slytherin, and then in doing so, read more about Salazar's ideas, his dogmas, and maybe that would have led him to sort of soften a little bit to Salazar's ideas. I don't. I don't really see Harry as doing that because I'm pretty sure he doesn't like to read. <laughs> um, I don't even know if he knows how. He might. But I'm pretty sure he knows how to read. <laughs> okay. But in any case, he doesn't seem like he. As we've been talking about, he's so indebted to these relationships that he has, and he he just yeah. hates Slytherin so much. Even if he found out that he was related to uh, Salazar Slytherin, um, I think he'd just be more concerned at that point that he was of some danger to the student body. And being the noble person he he is, I think he'd just go into the Forbidden Forest or hang out with Hagrid for life or something. But I don't, mm. or at least talk to Dumbledore. Yeah. For real. I don't think he would ever soften to the ideas. No. I, I think he would want to like push himself even more away from the ideas because he was. If he was the Harry Slytherin and everyone knew it, he'd uh, everyone would think he would he would have uh, Salazar's ideas. So he'd want to push them away even more. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Do we think it would have possibly changed like his relationships with people, specifically with Ron and Hermione? Like, I would, I guess, I would start to, by thinking that you know they would still defend him and you know convince him that it doesn't mean that he has to be like them. But how would I mean? How would Harry have? been able to interact with other people if he was indeed the heir of Slytherin. Well, remember when after uh, after that uh, dueling club and Ron and Hermione just kind of think about the fact that he can speak Parseltongue, the line is that it, it was as if someone had died. Um, and I think if Harry had continued to have Slytherin uh, connections, it seems like Ron is almost uh, disgusted a little bit. I feel like it would have kind of changed their relationship potentially because Ron is associated so much with what Gryffindor is. Um, yeah. You know? I think Ron would always struggle with like a, a mistrust. Um, it, yeah, I think it would have changed his relationship with Ron, but probably not Hermione. I think Hermione is too um, kind of intelligent and aware of, you know, people have individual personalities that aren't affected by their ancestry. Um, so I think she would have stuck by him. That makes me think that eventually it would drive them all apart because, like, Ron would, like, slowly, in his true fashion, be, like, really, like, 
I don't know how to put it into words. Mm. Like, he would have just pushed himself away from Harry slightly, and that would have, like, upset Hermione because she would have tried to defend Harry, and then Ron would get pissed because Hermione's defending Harry, like yeah. what happens in Deathly Hallows when they all fight, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and then eventually, like, everyone's unhappy with everyone. Because we all know how immature Ron can be when it comes to, like, the arguments that they have, so. We see this a lot in um, in Prisoner of Azkaban with all of the, the fighting that goes on between them all. Um, yeah, when, ending you know, Goblet of Fire. Guys, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, think it's, and, I yeah. think it's because Ron has a certain set of essential values. Um, and if anything questions those values, he's just going to, he has a certain way he's going to react. And I think this would certainly happen in this case. He, you know, he might he might love Harry, but the fact that Harry's, um, you know, part Slytherin would just really get in the way. Yeah, actually, Goblet of Fire is a brilliant way of seeing that. You know, when Ron completely turns against him. Um, yep. When you know they think that he put the his name in the goblet and all that kind of stuff. Um, there mm-hmm. are so many incidences where Ron, you know, is a bit fickle and will turn against them just for something that he doesn't properly understand. Yeah. yeah. Then again, I could also see it the other way. Maybe they come to Harry's aid, and after a while, there is that initial weirdness. But then, you know, Ron realizes that Harry is still a good person, and where he comes from doesn't necessarily matter. But I don't know. They have they have this such strong prejudice against Slytherins. It would be a hard bridge to to get there. Yeah, because they they didn't like stop talking to him after they found out he was a a possible tongue. So. Maybe, yeah, maybe it would just be tough to get over, but I think eventually they would just continue being friends. Yeah. I mean, they're Ron, Harry, and Hermione. They're going to be friends forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, that we, we want to toss that what-if question to you guys also, so let us know what you think would happen if Harry had indeed been the heir of Slytherin. But another one that I, I was thinking about is, what if Justin Finch-Fletchley had died? What if... He would not have been petrified, but he would have looked at the the basilisk the basilisk directly and and died as a result, like Myrtle did. Well, the school would have closed straight away. Well, you think so straight away? Yeah, I think so. As soon as like anything that bad happened, they would have to close it until they could figure out why. I mean, the only reason why it stopped being closed um, in the fifty years previously thing was because Hagrid was caught. Um, I guess I was more thinking about, you know, Harry would obviously be immediately blamed by yeah. most people. You so, yeah, either, mm-hmm. either the ministry would start investigating Harry because yeah. so many people would complain. Um, Definitely. Or, you know, Harry would be left with the Dursleys again. It'd be terrible. And remember that Hogwarts and Dumbledore are under so much political pressure, um, yeah. especially, especially by Lucius Malfoy, he's pushing that. So he would have jumped on it and called for Dumbledore's resignation. Um, and the school would certainly close, I think. Yeah. It would have been a very different future if Justin had died. Yeah, Justin, particularly instead of like someone else like Penelope or, you know, yeah. um, Colin, because of like the incident with Harry and the, the snake at the dueling club. Yeah, definitely. So Harry would have been immediately demonized. Yeah, I do think he would have been investigated by the ministry, and we would have seen Hagrid, you know, trying to like defend him like he does when he bursts into Dumbledore's office. Mm-hmm. Though I don't think having Hagrid defend you in a political atmosphere is really that helpful, especially when he was he... fired 50, or expelled fifty years previously for the same offense. Right. I mean, when Hermione gets uh, petrified, 
they're going to immediately go to Hagrid. So we got to remember him too. If if someone had actually died, Hagrid would have gone straight to Azkaban again. Well, I was thinking, that would have been the. I was thinking that if if Justin died, how would they even uh, accuse Harry? Because he's only a second year, and he, they haven't even learned about the unforgivable curses. So how how could they even accuse uh, him? Little little. Well, rarely do we see that logical that logic used by the Ministry of Magic. <laughs> so. But they also still believe in the monster, so they're not saying that Harry can perform all of these things, but they know that he speaks parcel tongue, so oh, if they true. could work out the basilisk thing themselves, they would just say that Harry was controlling the basilisk. Mm. And yet I gotta say that Dumbledore would still be on his side, but maybe to Dumbledore's own peril, because so many people would be against them. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, a what if. Yeah, also on that one, fans, let us know what you think. And, and there ends our um, what if section, um, and now we're going to jump right into the podcast question of the week. And I think I have a pretty good one. So we've been talking so much about potions and their effects and the way certain ingredients come together to, um, you know, to produce effect in a, in a body. And it got me thinking a lot about um, spells and magic. And the truth of the matter is a lot of spells have their roots in uh, Latin language. And when you put these elements of the language together and you say that word, that produces a certain magical effect. It's kind of like with potion making, you have a certain amount of ingredients that come together that produces an effect. So our question that we're putting to everybody for next episode is, like there's a language of spell making, do you think there's a language of potion making of certain ingredients and each one of those ingredients has a kind of connection that when put together produces different effects? And what does that mean for magic at large? And does that mean that spells and potions are inherently connected? Does that tell us something more about their connection if there's this unspoken language of ingredients like there's a language of spells. That's the question. If you have any comments about it, just put them right on the Alohomora main page under the question itself, and we'll read responses on the next episode. Well, great. Thank you very much, John, for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. It, you know, it was great. You were a good host. <laughs> yeah, we really enjoy having a Slytherin, especially since we're obviously talking about so much Slytherin mm-hmm. right Definitely. now. So that was great. And if any of you guys would like to join the show uh, or beyond like John was, there's a couple of ways that you can be featured on the Alohomora podcast. Um, you can email a clip to us at alohomorapodcast at gmail.com if you're interested in being a guest host. It's really important that you have appropriate audio and recording equipment because that's really um, important for the quality of our show. Or if you want to submit content either on our main site or our forums, like we always read throughout the show, feel free to do that. We love reading what you guys have to say, and we love being able to feature your thoughts on the show. Definitely. You can also contact us in all of the normal social media ways. Um, so we have our Twitter at AlohomoraMN. Um, we have Facebook at facebook.com forward slash open the Dumbledore. Um, we have our Tumblr page, which is mnalohomora.tumblr.com. You can also phone us on Skype and leave a message, which is 206-GO-ALBUS or 206-462-5287. And of course, you can contact us through our website, alohomora.mogglenet.com, and our email, alohomorapodcast at gmail.com. And we actually do still have one or two uh, small t-shirts still left for European listeners. So if you'd like one of them, please email us and we'll make sure you get one of those to you. And uh, you can also download our app where you can stream our, our uh, episodes. And we have one for the iPhone and the Android. Um, 
it, the app is available in the UK and the United States, and you can buy it for one ninety nine dollars or ninety nine pence. We have a whole bunch of interviews on there that we got from when we were at LeakyCon a few months ago from Marco Shiro, Hank Green, Lev Grossman, Amina Lima. Um, and we got tons of other extra content there. We have video logs, alternate endings, bloopers, transcripts. Um, and the really the app video itself is really cool. Um, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. If you haven't seen it already, it's really funny. Um, my girlfriend even makes a surprise uh, <laughs> visit. She's uh, Princess Leia, who also listens to Alohomora. <laughs> Don't forget, you can also subscribe to us via our iTunes feed. And we also are now offering a low-bandwidth version of the show, which is exclusively on our archives on the Alohomora website. And it starts with our first Chamber of Secret episode, episode 10. Uh, they're not available right now on iTunes, so head over to the website to download them directly to your computer. We also, uh, a couple weeks ago, launched our worldwide desk pig competition. You know how much I love the desk pig. No. And we're really looking for... Uh, we want to keep the magic going, so we were looking for a fan to try and draw the desk pig for us that we can use for uh, merchandise, put on an Alohomora t-shirt, and then if you draw that desk pig for us, we will. Uh, we can't offer you necessarily monetary compensation for all sold, but we'll send you free stuff with your desk pig on it, and that's pretty cool. So if you'd like to do that, we've extended the contest to uh, November 10th, so just get your entries into us just in an email attachment to Podcast at gmail.com. Okay, that's uh, that's the end of episode 15. It was a long one, but uh, it was a lot of fun. I'm Noah Freed. I'm Caleb Graves. And I'm Rosie Morris. Thank you for listening to episode 15 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. Bye, Caleb. <laughs> Wait, if he's going to do it, I'm going to do it too. Guys, mutual bathroom break. You can either go to the bathroom or you can just stay where you are. But if you do stay where you are, don't go to the bathroom. <laughs> I feel like it's not as funny as it usually is. I guess there's just not that much funny about people being attacked. <laughs> Apparently last night, my roommate, uh, there was this like zombie apocalypse on campus and he was a human and he was like fighting off zombies and he was just telling me about it and it sounded really cool. <laughs> Let me just uh, finish chewing this candy corn, sorry. Oh my God, I was eating candy corn earlier. Really? I love it, Okay, man. you guys have to tell me, what is candy corn compared to popcorn? Is it anything different? Or is oh, it's it... completely different. Yeah, it's not okay. really like popcorn at all. It's just... Then I don't know what candy corn is. No. Sorry. We don't have it in England. Well, po- popcorn is like corn. Candy corn is like candy. Yeah, it's candy. It's all sugar. It's delicious. It gets sickening after a while, though. Yeah, it does, but I just keep eating it. <laughs> Gryffindor. Gryffindor.